Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Local, local. Uh, context of white supremacy. Uh, we are about three, four minutes from having our guest on the line. Looking forward to chatting it up with him. Um, just uh, an FYI, I had planned to be broadcasting today to discuss some of the current events, uh, what has unfolded with Ray Rice, what has unfolded with the Atlanta Hawks. I saw just as we were uh, going live that uh, they got the actual audio of Danny Ferry, racist suspect, the phone call where he was talking about Lou Albing, who was a black male. Uh, he was born in South Sudan, and uh, he was talking about him and said that I read a scouting report that said he's got a little African in him and went on to further disparage him uh, in a very racist manner. Uh, that apparently there's an audio recording of this that got released today as well. Um, I was going to talk about all that. That was the plan. Uh, going into uh, Wednesday, really. And then I got an email back, uh, our guest for today's program. I had contacted them weeks ago about being guests on our program. They agreed, I think even last month, to be truthful. At any rate, I hadn't heard back from them. Uh, They emailed me yesterday evening, kind of late yesterday evening, and said uh, that they could do tomorrow. I think September 11th was one of the original dates that I suggested, but again, I hadn't heard back from them. That was weeks ago. So I assumed, you know, that it was not going to work, but they said they could do today. I'm always game uh, to have a white person on the program. I think that's constructive, particularly this white man, uh, filmmaker, uh, Philip Morton, uh, the documentary Spanish Lake. I saw this film before months before everything went down in Ferguson And I'm not sure, I'd have to go back and double check, but I might have even played the audio talking about this film in June, uh, about two months before the death, the shooting death of Michael Brown Jr. At any rate, uh, I have obviously been keeping abreast of what's happening uh, in Ferguson, so I felt definitely up to the challenge to have them on uh, under short notice. Uh, The only reason that we got a little bit of a delay in getting rolling uh, today is, uh, in addition to them getting back to me kind of short notice yesterday, uh, today when I followed through uh, to make sure that Mr. Morton was going to be on the program, I uh, confirmed the same time that I originally said, which was 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Pacific. And uh, he, when I just contacted him, be like, you know, it's five minutes after showtime. Are we going? Are, are, we, are we still on? And he said that uh, he was under the impression that we were starting at, 7.30 Central, 5.30 Pacific, which is not the case. I looked at my email, and he said that it might have been that uh, his white producer who was kind of organizing all this gave him the incorrect time. So that is why we uh, started a little late. Uh, always uh, good, in my opinion, get some uh, new snippets in, particularly if we're going to hear about Minister Malcolm. Always good. But, yeah, the original plan was to kind of talk about current events. Uh, we definitely will make time for that uh, as it uh 
as we continue uh, the next couple of days. Uh, we'll be on the air, I think, every day through Monday, so we should have time to kind of discuss some of the things that have uh, evolved over the past few days. But I always enjoy having white people front and center uh, to be questioned with suspicion. Uh, so hopefully uh, we will have our guest uh, in about 30 seconds. I'll give him a ring, and we will go ahead and get cracking. Um, uh, I guess to kind of give a, a quick primer, uh, you'll hear some of this in the uh, introduction uh, class. Uh, that's a big one. Uh, one of our guests uh, before had talked about, and as have I, uh, when white people, one of the ways, in my opinion, that they practice confusion is to not be clear and accurate when discussing racism, to try to say that there are other competing systems, that it's not just about race, there are other issues, uh, class, uh, they might go all over the place, patriarchy, sexism, homo uh, heteronormativity. Uh, they'll end up all over the place, intersectionality. Uh, and that comes up big time in this, which is, it's stunning for many reasons, uh, just because it's so obvious. So that's one of the things that I would keep in mind, and I would even encourage having questions ready to reveal truth, uh, to <clears throat> shatter uh, that lie and inaccuracy, in my opinion, uh, that this is about class, uh, that this is really about money, that it's not about race. Uh, I just concluded that that is not true at all. And hopefully I'll have some questions and can make some points along the way to evidence that. But that's something that you should definitely uh, be prepared for. And to just keep in mind, this film was released two months prior to everything happening in Ferguson. Uh, you can go back, you can look online, and you'll see reviews interviews, uh, lots of news reports about this film back in June, even before June a little bit, talking about this project. And then things really got interesting uh, once all of this happened in August. Uh, and we'll talk about more of that as we get ready to roll. Uh, I will go ahead and ring our guest right now. Stay tuned, and uh, we will get started. Context of white supremacy. Look around you. We're not going to let you go back to business as usual. It's not going to happen. The meeting lasted three hours and came a month to the day Michael Brown was killed by Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson. The mayor and six city council members, one of whom is black, listened as residents expressed outrage at city leaders. They chanted, shut it down, while raising their arms in the air, symbolic of the Brown shooting in which witnesses say the unarmed team had his hands up when he was shot. The present administration of Ferguson, the Ferguson Florida School District, and the Ferguson Police Department, to me, represent a good old boys network. The council proposed creating a resident review board to oversee the police department. The community is tired. We're tired of being oppressed. We're tired of being lied to. The city council also wants to change the way its municipal court collects fines. Critics say it has long targeted poor and minority drivers. It takes a lot of effort and time and money from my household when I have to constantly come to court over something as frivolous as a blinker not being turned on. Residents expressed outrage that Officer Wilson has not been arrested for Brown's death. One of them was a man arrested during the protest that followed. I spent more time in jail than Darren Wilson. 
my last demand is that you do everything in your power to have this man arrested. Earlier in the day, an attorney for Michael Brown's family also called for Officer Wilson to face charges. That Darren Wilson should be arrested, he should be booked, he should be fingerprinted, and he should be photographed. The cow's context of white supremacy, how can you go wrong with Nat King Cole? Today's date, Thursday, September 11th, 2014. So I have been told uh, we should be back tomorrow. Uh, first installment, uh, book study session, uh, Mr. Richard Williams. I think a lot of folks caught uh, Serena's William, uh, Serena Williams uh, winning the U.S. Open this past weekend. Her father, excellent book, uh, all about racism, black and white, the way I see it. We will be starting tomorrow, same program time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we'll be here on Saturday, the compensatory call-in, kind of catch-up uh, news and what have you from the past seven days. Uh, Sunday, we should be here <clears throat> as well. Uh, we should have uh, a sheriff from San Francisco County, uh, Mr. Kevin Fisher-Paul. Uh, if you have been listening, uh, you heard the interview that he did about two, three weeks back. Uh, he is a white male. Uh, he is gay, and he has adopted two non-white children. And he was talking about speaking with his black adopted son about the events in Ferguson because he is a sheriff, enforcement official, uh, talking about what has happened uh, with Michael Brown and all of that. Uh, and then Monday we should be here as well uh, with another white person uh, who talks, writes about racism, white supremacy. So stay tuned. Uh, we should be uh, very active uh, winding down the summer of 2014. Uh, with that, uh, our guest for today's broadcast, uh, obviously there has been a lot of focus uh, with regards to racism and the Ferguson-St. Louis area for about the past month. Uh, we still do not have any charges, no indictment. Uh, and they've already said it could be weeks and or months before a decision is reached on those issues. Uh, they did have the first uh, city council meeting this past uh, Tuesday, as you heard in the audio clip. Uh, folks were uh, intense and discussing some of the very same issues we will be talking about today's broadcast. Uh, I first heard about the film Spanish Lake, I think it was June of this year, and uh, I thought it was interesting. I think a lot of folks uh, talk about issues with regards to uh, gentrification, uh, what is called gentrification, uh, redlining, uh, and residential racism, white supremacy. Uh, that's something that we've talked about a lot on this program, if you remember uh, Dr. Thomas Shapiro, he's at Brandeis University. Uh, we talked about his book, The Hidden Cost of Being African American, where he devotes uh, chapters, many chapters uh, of that book, 
uh, to exactly what we're talking about on this broadcast today. Uh, he was with us. You can go back in the archives, November of 2009. Uh, I would definitely encourage folks to go back uh, and revisit the archives and or read Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Sons. She also has great information about exactly what we're going to be discussing today, <clears throat> rampant problem that is not a new issue. Um, I heard more about this film after the events began to get rowdy in Ferguson and thought the response uh, with regard to this film and answers it might offer to what has taken place and why uh, Michael Brown Jr. was killed, uh, that was fascinating as well. And I'm really excited, looking forward uh, to discussing that with the filmmaker, uh, our guest for today's broadcast. In addition to the film we'll discuss today, Spanish Lake, uh, he has collaborated with Hollywood stars Regina King and Cat Williams. Uh, he also contributed to the 2012 feature Battleship. Uh, our guest, he produced, directed, and edited the film that we will be discussing today, Spanish Lake, uh, and he is a native of the St. Louis, Missouri area. Real pleasure to have him on the program. Joining us live, our guest, Mr. Philip Andrew Morton. Uh, Mr. Morton, are you there? I am here. Outstanding. Thank you for having me today. Thank you for sharing a bit of your Thursday evening. Though you uh, have been pretty busy uh, over the last month or so uh, with this project. Um, for our listeners, uh, this might be their first time hearing about you and your work. Uh, anything that you think would be helpful for listeners to know about who you are before we get started? Um, mainly in that, I mean, I'm a documentary filmmaker, and I'm originally from the St. Louis area, the northern suburbs of St. Louis, where Ferguson is located. That is my home stomping ground. So um, everything that's taken place with the Mike Brown shooting and the Ferguson riots, it's very close to home to me, and it's very much related to my new film, initially. Right on. Uh, you are a white male, is that correct? I am. Right on. Uh, the address, in case uh, folks that are listening in, if they want to get more information, is it best for them to go to the Facebook space uh, to get information about the film? Yes, absolutely. It's, um, it's on Facebook, and it's Spanish Lake Film. And uh, we have all of our updates and articles and posts over there that you can follow for our uh, upcoming release next month. Okay. And it should be available. Uh, it's October. Netflix and all the other major uh, film outlets in, in October. Uh, folks should be able to map the film, purchase a copy, and view it online. Is that correct? Absolutely. Outstanding. Uh, this program, before we get started, uh, we always uh, kind of begin with our definition. Uh, I think the term racism uh, has been discussed quite a bit uh, over the last month, and I think it's very important that people uh, define their terms. Uh, it's been my experience. Everyone doesn't have the same definition for the term racism. Uh, and just being clear about that so that people know what they mean when the term is used, I think that does a lot to decrease confusion. And just I hope the goal anytime these discussions take place is clarity. Um, the definition that I use for racism, uh, and I use that term as a synonym with the term white supremacy, the definition I use for both terms is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe and they classify as not white. Uh, do you think such a system exists? Do you think that's an accurate definition? 
think that's a great question. Um, my, my film and the goal of my film was to deconstruct that notion, that definition that you just um, provided. I think in the St. Louis area specifically, it's really about economic oppression and that racism is in the St. Louis area kind of a smokescreen to keep the residents divided. And I think the incidents, what's happening in Ferguson and the fact that this has turned into more of a racial issue versus a human rights issue or even an economic oppression issue is really kind of diverting uh, the attention to where it needs to be. And I've seen a lot of backlash against um, Mike Brown in terms of defending Officer Wilson um, by the white residents because the, the racism, what you just spoke of, has been kind of and fueling. It's turned more into a, a color issue. And what I think is the problem is the root of it is economic. But um, yeah, that's such a complicated, complicated subject. But I, I, I definitely think we'll go more into that, discuss the film and stuff like that. Absolutely. Uh, I do. Uh, one thing I, I tell folks to uh, be alert about uh, when there are questions asked, in a conversation on racism to make sure that the question is answered. Um, I did not hear an answer to the question. Uh, if you think that definition that I gave for racism, white supremacy, if you think it's accurate and if you think such a system exists, uh, if, you, if you do not agree, that's fine too. I just want to make sure that I get yeah. a clear answer. I think racism and white supremacy are two different um, subjects. And racism, I believe, is just it's more of a judgment um, a willingness to want to be um, not unified with another race other than yourself. So I believe it's, it's more of a cultural discrimination for whatever reason, whereas I think white supremacy is more of what you spoke of, of wanting to kind of um, oppress everybody that's non-white and keep them powerless. Um, I know, I think that there are racists that just want to be separate, that just want to do their own thing and, they might not like the other, but that's their main concern, whereas white supremacists want to rule everything and keep everything that's non-white powerless. So I think, in my opinion, they're two different things. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate that answer. Uh, okay, so that is important for, for listeners, uh, that we do not agree uh, with regards to uh, what I mean about the system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, we do not agree. He does not think those terms are the same, uh, and that uh, you said you think the dominant system uh, that is happening is about economic oppression, not oppressing yeah. people who are not white. Okay. Uh, make sure that I get that in for the record. I do not agree. Uh, and any time that white people make that argument, uh, I feel it is not accurate. I feel like there's tons of evidence that reveal that that is not accurate. And I feel that could be a deliberate act of racism to confuse people about why these things happen. But that's fine, too, and I think that's something people can just kind of think about as we have this conversation about your film uh, and just kind of have in the background what's been happening in Ferguson over the last month. That's just something people can ponder on. I could be in error. Um, you said you grew up uh, kind of in the North uh, St. Louis area suburbs. Um, can you kind of give us a, a time period? What, what, date was this, what date was this, and what was your uh, childhood experience like in that area? Sure. Um, I grew up in in the north suburbs of St. Louis in an area called Spanish Lake. Spanish Lake is eight miles away from Ferguson, just to give the listeners kind of a geographic reference point. Um, Spanish Lake was 93% white when I, when I was born. 
And by the time that I left in 1997, it was shifting radically. It was probably about 55% black when I left. So it was going through a major racial transition when I left. So I kind of saw the changeover. And um, it's now primarily black community. It's 77 to 80% black. Um, and that whole area has gone through a radical shift um, in terms of race. And we call it white flight, but you could also call it social engineering. Um, my experience living in that area was great. Um, it was a primarily lower class white neighborhood. And um, <clears throat> it's uh, kind of a country area. It borders the Mississippi and Missouri rivers. And very beautiful, very full of old history and um, beautiful architecture. And it was your typical Americana suburbs post 1950 World War II, uh, you know, tract housing, that kind of an area. So my experience living in that area was great. Um, there was some cultural diversity. There were pockets of neighborhoods that were African-American, and there was no problem between the races in that period. Um, <laughs> I had a lot of African-American friends, and there, I, I kind of, I think, Having that experience, um, the idea of multiculturalism for me was was native from you know when I was born. I never I never experienced what it was like to live in a all white neighborhood, so it was nice. Hmm. Uh, when you that's that's fascinating. Uh, that's when I hear someone at any point uh, say that there is no tension between the races. That is fascinating, uh, particularly coming from a white person uh, referencing any time on the planet. But uh, when you say uh, that you had a lot of black friends, like, can you uh, kind of give us a, a ballpark number? Um, well, one of my best friends in high school was black. And, uh, gosh, I'd say about five or six. But, you know, I didn't have a lot of friends. I don't have, like, 30 friends. So, okay. you know, your, your primary, you know, 15 friends in high school and not quite half are black. I mean, that's a decent amount. Okay. Okay. What was the demographics at your high school, racial demographics at your high school again? <clears throat> well, I went to a private high school. I went to a Catholic high school, mm. and that is primarily a, a white religion. So I would say we had 400 graduating students, and out of that class, there was probably about five black students out of that. Wow. <laughs> and they were all your friends. <laughs> oh, no. I wasn't necessarily friends with those those black students. I had friends that were outside of my school system that were in the public school system. Okay. Now, the, demogra the demographics of the public school systems were quite different. That would have been more about 78% black students and about 30% white. Wow. Okay. That is fascinating. Uh, and, and this was... When was this, 80s, 90s, did you say? Uh, 90s. 90s, okay. Do you recall, like, your, uh, like, parents or, like, family members, white adults that you were around at that time, do you recall them ever uh, talking about black people or making any comments that some people might say, oh, that's, that's something a racist might say? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, not my immediate family. My mom, her first husband was black, so... Mm. She was very open-minded about race and taught me to be like that. Um, I have an aunt who is also African-American, so to have a family member who is African-American is um, something that, you know, if, if, if you're well-cultured and you have great experiences, I don't see any need to become a racist, or at least in my experience. Um, 
I would say in terms of certain neighbors, yes, I did hear things. Um, in my very first neighborhood, which was much lower class, um, when the black residents started to move into the neighborhood, they panicked. And they would use some derogatory phrases to refer to who was moving in. And um, I knew better than that. You know, I knew they were coming from a place of ignorance or fear. And <clears throat> so, you know, I was, able, I was able to brush off the surrounding racism that I heard. Um, but, you know, that wasn't the case for everybody. There were some racist people, for sure. Hmm. Fascinating. Wow. Um, I don't want to get sidetracked, because I definitely want to kind of get to the impetus for what prompted you to make this film and what have you, but just um, that's something that's important. People talk about that on a regular basis in terms of uh, what they call interracial relationships, and some people even suggesting that that's going to be the way that uh, racism is defeated. Um, you said that your mom, uh, her first husband, was a black person. Did she have children from that first marriage? No, no. I'm her only child. Oh, okay. Okay. Did she keep in, in contact with her first husband? Oh, I believe so, sporadically, yeah. But, you know, we, we also had black friends, you know, in the family. And so it was, um, I just didn't see color that way. If anything, I, I noticed the absence of color in our neighborhood, and I, I wanted more black neighbors, and I wanted more black friends because, um, you know, I knew that and when you're a child, you're attracted to differences before you're made to be fearful of them. And um, I had nothing but positive experience, so there was no need for me to be fearful. Hmm. Did your, uh, did, have you ever heard of your mom uh, there being a problem with her being married to a black person, like from other family members or other white people? Did they have concerns or a problem with that? Yes. Uh, she definitely faced some um, rejection from her family during that period, and um, as did my aunt. And my dad's brother married a black woman, and there was some rejection in that family too. So um, it was something familiar to me. I, I, I saw and heard of um, the rejection that happens when you date outside your race. Wow. That is fascinating. Wow. So did your mom remarry? or? Yeah, she married my dad. I came after my... Um, after that first marriage, so and he was white, so um, yeah. Fascinating, fascinating. Okay, so 90s, uh, you said that you had heard uh, comments, uh, you said not from your family, uh, racist comments or people saying things where they were upset about uh, increasing numbers of black people uh, moving into the area and they were not happy about this. Um, you said that your mom and your white father, that they they did not view, they didn't have this view? No. Okay. When these comments were made, like, did you speak up or did your mom speak up to confront them for making these sort of statements? Um, no. I mean, at my age, you know, being a teenager, it wasn't, it wasn't something that you would do to a, somebody's parent and correct them at that age. It's just not appropriate. Um, but I just, I think when you hear ignorance, you can just kind of blow it off, brush it off. Um, but, you know, I, that's, it's just par for the course. I think you're always going to hear statements from people that you don't agree with, whether that be racist or otherwise. Um, to me, I just have my own belief system, and that's all that mattered. Hmm. Okay. Did this issue come up at school? I know you said you were at a, a private Catholic school. Did this issue come up at school at all, amongst classmates or even in the classroom? Nope. Hmm. nope. Fascinating. Fascinating. Okay. So you graduate, are you uh, immediately out of the St. Louis area, or did you stay there? Like, how long before you uh, ventured off to, to other regions? 
Um, I moved from Spanish Lake in 1997 to an area um, in like mid-St. Louis, totally different area, to go to college. And so that area was far away from, you know, Spanish Lake. It was more of a, like a typical white picket fence, suburban, um, more upper class neighborhood. And I stayed there for four and a half years until I moved to Los Angeles and then been here ever since. So, okay. So what what prompted you? Uh, so I looked at some of your previous work, uh, Battleship, and the stuff that you did with Cat Williams. Like that's not really uh, nothing wrong with it, but that's not really serious documentary work on racism. What prompted this interest to do a documentary on Spanish Lake and racism? Um, I actually had worked on a couple of documentaries during that time that were race related. One was um, a film called Side by Side, and it was about um, this political group of women in Sierra Leone, Africa. And it was produced by Madeleine Albright, our former Secretary of State. And I worked on that project as an editor and a, a co-producer. And I flew to Washington, D.C. to work on that. And it was some of the most horrific footage I've ever seen. because it, it, I had to go through the raw footage of the civil wars that were happening in Sierra Leone and the mutilation that was happening to the, to the, the citizens there. And, and it was just some of the worst things I'd ever seen. Um, and then I flew back from Washington, D.C., stopped into St. Louis to surprise my mom for her birthday. Um, on that trip, I went back to Spanish Lake to visit my old home. And when I went there, it was abandoned, run down. My school was abandoned. My church was abandoned. And it was uh, easily one of the worst days of my life. So um, since I was already in that documentary like frame of mind, um, I thought, well, you know, this would probably be a good documentary because I can't think of another film that deals with white flight and the aftermath and the emotions. And I just, I wanted to know more. Um, so I, I was working on that documentary. And then I also worked on um, Regina King. She had a documentary called The Story of a Village that also dealt with Africa and her, her relationship with Africa. So I was learning a lot with that. And then Cat Williams, I worked on a documentary with him. So I was working on several documentaries at that time, and, and they were race-related. So it was kind of newer, but it was familiar territory for me, and, it, and this was now a personal project for me. So it, it seemed like a logical next step. Hmm. What, uh, what type of budget uh, were you working with uh, to do this film? <laughs> well, this one's independently funded, and I put up the money for the first several shoots, and still has pretty much bankrupted me. I'm broke. Um, budget, gosh, you know, we're under $100,000, and that's, like, minuscule for any kind of film, especially even a documentary. Um, our crew has been extremely small. I've done several positions, probably about 10 positions. So um, we've just kind of, you know, nobody wanted to fund it because nobody cared. There was some little town in the middle of nowhere about the subject that nobody wanted to cover, and even now, you know, we had a theater change that's banned us. So um, we haven't had a lot of support from the media or, I mean, any kind of companies. Hmm. When, uh, not to, to get too far ahead of uh, the story here, with everything that has unfolded in the last few months, do you anticipate that will help with sales when this is released Netflix and other out outlets where people can actually purchase the film? 
I think so. I think that there's a there's a very direct link between my story of the film and the social engineering involved and what has happened in Ferguson. Um, so yeah, just by that that subject relation, I think it will help the exposure of the film and get more people interested in what they might not have been interested in before. But I think the film would have been relevant even before Ferguson happened. I think that uh, the subject of white flight, um, social engineering, and gentrification, all those subjects um, are very relevant in America today, and there aren't that many films that deal with it. So um, I feel like the film is important, um, both pre- and post-Ferguson. Fascinating. Uh, context of white supremacy. Again, our guest, Mr. Philip Andrew Morton. Uh, you used the term uh, social engineering. Uh, what exactly does that mean, and how did that manifest in Spanish Lake? Social engineering, in my definition, is the practice of moving or steering residents into particular areas for um, the city planning at large. So um, there's this term gentrification that people hear a lot. It's when an area that has been economically declined for years kind of perks back up and becomes a new hotspot for people to live. When that happens, the government decides to kind of invest their money into certain neighborhoods and clean it up and um, fix it up. But then often those people that used to live in those neighborhoods get flushed to a different area because they're not allowed to live there anymore, they can't afford to live there anymore. So then they are moved to a new area, which will usually decline economically, and um, it's the process of the government officials deciding where people go, for what reason. Spanish Lake is an example of that. Um, it's an area that was primarily middle to lower white uh, class people, and now is primarily middle to lower class black. So there's been a racial resegregation that has happened in Spanish Lake. And my film details how that happened and why and how the government officials moved people from one area to another. Hmm. Several important things uh, that you said there. I hope we get details, and I would encourage folks to dial in if you have questions. I know we have St. Louis listen or St. Louis residents uh, who are listeners to the program. Um, the first thing uh, you said that when what is called gentrification, when this happens, uh, the displaced black people or displaced non-white people, uh, they are flushed to a different area uh, because they can't afford to be there anymore. Property taxes go up and just general cost of living tends to increase uh, when you have an influx of white people. Um, that term flushed, uh, generally I hear it associated with a toilet uh, and the removal of feces. Uh, I'm not saying that you, you did that purposely. I'm just saying that I think it's that's the way that we tend to talk about black people, non-white people, uh, and particularly even when people are talking about this issue of what is called gentrification. Uh, it is removal of waste. Uh, these people are not taking care of the property. They're a problem. They need to be gotten rid of. Uh, that's just something I tend to pay attention to words people use when they're talking about racism. I thought that was important. Uh, also, you said that this social engineering, these were government officials uh, who were behind this racial relocation with regards to moving, displacing these black residents to the Spanish Lake area and other regions uh, in St. Louis County. Uh, were these uh, white government officials? Yes, that's the time they were. Hmm. Uh, did, did any of them, did you try to speak to any of these folks if they're still alive about 
what happened and why they did this? Um, the majority of the people that were behind, that the higher-ups are not living now, so I wasn't able to interview them. The ones that were alive and around, I did interview some of them. Some of them declined to go on camera but did have off-camera conversations with me. And they helped me piece together pieces of the puzzle and did confirm that it was a strategic and planned um, relocation. I think the term you used earlier was uh, resegregation. Uh, I think if it's a strategic and planned resegregation, uh, if that's what's happening to me, that's what I mean about poking holes and we're not being really truthful, in my opinion, when we try to say that this is a class issue that's really at the root of it because if that were the case, it would have been a strategic and planned economic redistribution. That's not what you said, and that's not what the evidence suggests. The evidence alarmingly, overwhelmingly, in my view, seems to suggest that this is we are flushing, dumping black people uh, to a certain area. Um, what are some of the, since you don't have to give the names up, uh, what are some of the kind of off-camera comments that they said to you to kind of confirm this strategic dumping of black folks? Uh, well, you're dealing with also, you know, class. So you're dealing with Section 8 housing. And one thing in my film that really makes clear is um, the class system and that you have, if we're speaking on African-American populations, you have middle-class African-Americans, rich African-Americans, and lower-class African-Americans. And a lot of the lower-class African-Americans lived in the city. They lived in the series of high-rise projects called Pruitt-Igo. And they wanted to clean up the city, gentrify the city. And Pruitt-Igo was a disaster on a lot of levels, and they wanted to relocate those residents. So a lot of apartment complexes were built in Spanish Lake over a short period of time. Some of them were built in Ferguson. Some of them were built in other municipalities. And the proportion of apartments that were built were disproportionate to the population that lived there. So there was an um, influx of overpopulation of apartments. So when you build that many apartments in an area, the economic composition of your area is going to be primarily lower class because you have more more apartments than you do houses, basically. So after that happened, then the blockbusting happened from the city up north. Um, African Americans were only shown houses in the north suburbs of St. Louis. They weren't shown houses in the south. They weren't shown houses in the west. And it was what they call blockbusting. It's neighborhood by neighborhood. The houses go up for sale. The realtors come in and either scare the white residents out or the white people move out of, out of fear. And then those those neighborhoods are transitioned from white to black in, you know, uh, one big movement. Um, instead of being kind of, you know, trickled in, more of an integration, it was more of a resegregation north into the suburbs. Hmm. Um, so all, the, all those apartments were purposely built up north to make sure that there was enough, um, there were enough apartments to accommodate the poor people from the city. So while they destroyed the big high-rises, they built the smaller apartments up in the north suburbs. Hmm. Fascinating. Um, I, at least for me, uh, I think it is uh, extremely important because uh, people frequently try to suggest that, uh, and I think you've even said the term, several times already uh, that racism is the product of ignorance. And I also, I think, I totally uh, disagree. I think that is uh, one of the uh, worst mythologies, uh, fabrications that perpetuates and helps 
continue the practice of racism is suggesting that white people are doing this out of ignorance. Uh, those terms are purposeful, deliberate, strategic. Uh, to me, all of that, it just it belies that the people who are doing this are very informed about what they're doing. And I suspect that's why a lot of them did not, the ones that are still alive anyway, did not want to speak to you on camera uh, about what they did, what they deliberately, willfully participated in. Um, one of the points I did want to make, though, uh, I had a sound clip as well. You did uh, an interview on uh, Bring Your Own documentary, uh, Andy Timoner, uh, she's a white female, I think, uh, hosted the program. I wanted to play a segment, and it's, it's even got a little snippet from the film that's touching on these issues. Uh, but I, I just wanted to, to take a quick moment to read. This is, uh, actually, I can give a twofer. Nat King Cole, you can never go wrong with Nat King Cole uh, in saying that this is a class issue. I've said for years, under the system of white supremacy, white people constitute a class to themselves. Even poor white people do not view themselves being in the same group class as poor black people or black people, period. And there, again, is overwhelming evidence to support this. And I think the other way that this is also evidence, when you have black people who do have a lot of money, I heard the interview that you did on St. Louis Public Radio, uh, where people were talking about their black people who do have a lot of money and have nice houses and all of that. That's certainly true white people have also shown an aversion to being around them on a mass scale, even when it's not, well, we don't want these poor black people coming in here in Section 8 housing, and they don't take care of their property, even when that's not the case. Someone like Matt King Cole, he experienced this same sort of revulsion and racism when he moved out to Los Angeles. It's in the documentary film, uh, Matt King Cole, uh, Afraid of the Dark, uh, where he moved to California, and even his daughter, Natalie King Cole, has talked about this, where white people poisoned their dog, burned down their rose bushes, burned nigger into their yard. Uh, and there are tons of black people uh, who can attest to this very same thing who are not poor. They're not on public assistance. They have a lot of money. Uh, that's why I said check uh, Isabel Wilkerson's book as well. And I'll just quick snippet uh, from her book where she's talking about Dr. Robert Pershing Foster, Dr has a lot of money, can afford to be in any of these neighborhoods. He's a black male, though, uh, where she writes uh, two court rulings, Shelley v. and Barrows v. had struck down restrictive covenants by the time he arrived, Dr. Pershing, but whites were still resisting black incursions into the strongholds of Glendale, Canoga Park, Hawthorne, Southgate, and through most of the San Fernando Valley. There was a bombing near Culver City and cross-burning in Lemert Park. This is California, not Mississippi. Some neighbor, neighborhood groups went so far as to buy up properties themselves, even at a financial loss, to prevent blacks from moving in. And I think that last line for me is so important because when people talk about class, you would assume that people are always just doing things in the interest of money and making the most money possible. This also strikes that down because these are white people who are taking a financial loss to keep black people out of their neighborhood. Uh, does what I'm saying, does this make any sense or am I just talking gibberish? <laughs> um, I'm familiar with a lot of the stuff you just mentioned, being a Los Angeles resident, and I know all those areas you mentioned. I think, I think there's a lot of points that you've made that are absolutely correct and that race does determine a lot of people's decisions on where they live. Um, one thing that we do go into in the film that I do want to clarify is that there is a certain destabilizing 
that happens in neighborhoods and keeps them from being truly racially integrated. And my film is a great deconstruction of that process, of an area that was starting to integrate. But once, once the introduction of blockbusting and racial fear instigated by um, real estate agents sets in, that people leave out of fear of their investments going down in value versus actual racism. Sure, some of them absolutely moved out of racist, racist motivation, absolutely. But there's a miseducation out there in terms of race and property value that's been, you know, it's been in America for 100 years that, you know, it's that there goes the neighborhood mentality. And um, there's a lot of uneducated people that really think that's true. And my film breaks that down. And I think if we could, if we could reconstruct the notions of race and property value and difference in classes, um, oh. that we, that we could um, integrate better as a culture. Hmm. That is fascinating. I, I definitely I want to play uh, this segment because it does touch on uh, some of the, the things, the points uh, that you're raising here. Um, but I just I also I just like I said I, I think when people talk about documentary films, uh, frequently they will say that they they want to be balanced. I think that's the code word that people uh, frequently use that they want to be uh, balanced in what they have to say. Uh, and in my opinion, uh, it's we want to be accurate. Uh, I think accuracy is much more important than being quote unquote balanced, uh, whatever that means. Uh, again, I could be wrong, but I just there's too much evidence, and I just I want to pull this report up really quick. This is uh, Dorothy Brown. Uh, she's a black female. She's a professor uh, of tax law at Emory University, and she's just uh, I mean it's it's stunning. That's what I mean about we need to be truthful uh, about racism and what a driving force that is. Because I don't I don't necessarily think that this is even a well white people are ignorant that they just have poor information about uh, how black residents or non-white residents in general affect property values. Um, she released this report came out uh, in 2012, uh, December of 2012, where she talks about uh, white aversion to black residents. Uh, she says, <laughs> she says, if you think this is class and not race, you are wrong. A 2001 Brookings Institution study showed that the wealthy minority neighborhoods had less home value per dollar of income than wealthy white neighborhoods. The same, the same study conducted that poor white neighborhoods had more home value per income than poor minority neighborhoods. The Brookings study was also based on a comparison of home values to homeowner incomes in the nation's 100 largest metropolitan areas, and it found that even when homeowners had similar incomes, black-owned homes were valued at 18% less than white-owned homes. The 100 metropolitan areas were home to 58% of all whites and 63% of all blacks. Uh, and she goes on to, uh, they did a study with white people and they found that even if you hold for income, amenities, services, whatever you want to have great schools and all of the things that people value in a residential area, the vast majority of white people had no interest in being in an area that had a significant population of black people. Uh, it didn't matter if it was no crime, it didn't matter if they had great schools, it didn't matter if they had hospitals and everything else you wanted, if there were, it didn't even say majority, just a significant population of black people, no thanks, we'll find somewhere else to go. And that's what I mean about just being truthful that 
racism is the dominant, by far, uh, factor in driving these. Uh, did you want to respond? I mean, all that stuff you said is true. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to deny that there's racism. I'm not trying to de- deny that there's economic opportunities are not equal for the races. That's definitely true. Um, my film is really more about um, the social engineering aspect of it and how the, the cultural differences, how they impact everybody. And one thing that, I, you know, in St. Louis, that's really, St. Louis has, has had a history of an extremely corrupt government for 100 years. Um, they are masters at social um, engineering and resegregation. And they've treated the lower class white residents and the black population. I mean, they're... They should be criminals. I mean, and what they've done, they dumped radioactive waste in the northern suburbs and it leaked into the creek system for a lot of the white residents. Um, there's been multi-million dollar lawsuits against these corporations and against the St. Louis government for allowing that to happen because a lot of white residents, including some of my relatives, have come down with cancer because of the radioactive waste that was dumped there knowingly. Um, on top of that, the St. Louis government, um, they, they used chemical testing on the uh, residents of Pruitt-Igo, those the projects in the city, knowingly. They've knowingly resegregated these residents, pit them against each other, and all these poor white residents fled to this whole new area called St. Charles. It's like the further out suburbs. But they are in no, no means really any more powerful than the black population that lives there, um, the power lies with the rich white residents. Then the rich white residents don't care about any anybody else that's other than them. So when I use that word economic oppression, it's affecting the lower class white residents that also live in those suburbs and have moved because of it. But those white residents think they're above it. They think that they have nothing to be fearful of. But what has gone down in Ferguson in terms of violation of basic human rights and in terms of um, suppression of the right to protest, um, those are those are governmental issues that affect everybody. And the fact that those white residents don't seem to be concerned is heavily concerning to me. And I think my film is a good kind of counterbalance to that and to wake everybody up. Hmm. I will play a snippet uh, from your film uh, so folks can hear some of this. Um, I'll just quickly uh, that dumping issue. Uh, There are research reports that show uh, the greatest single single factor above and beyond any other mitigating influence. Uh, If you want to look to see whether or not there's potentially going to be some sort of uh, dumping of toxic material in a specific area, what is the percentage of black people, non-white people in that area? That's the single greatest determinant with regards to whether or not you're going to find some sort of dumping of toxic, potentially harmful substances uh, in an area. Um, this, again, is from uh, the, I guess it's a, a broadcast, television broadcast that's online, uh, Bring Your Own Documentary. Uh, it happened post-Michael Brown. Uh, when this happened, they interviewed you uh, and the producer for your film. Uh, I'll play the quick, uh, quick, snip, quick snippet. Uh, you will hear uh, the contention that this is not a race issue, that this is a class issue. Again, I said again, I don't think that's accurate. I think that's incorrect. Uh, and I say again, uh, anytime that white people are making that argument and not you, that could be a deliberate act of racism, white supremacy. But we'll play the clip uh, and then get the response from Mr. Morton in the context of white supremacy. Stay tuned. 
Um, let's take a look at how the popular, I mean, this is a really powerful part of your film. When, when we get to the year 2000, to see that, again, it's not a difference in color that's at the root of this. It's not a difference of color that's at the root of Ferguson happening. It, 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 I mean, there is some, obviously, some racial issues, but it's, it's not that. It's that there's a lack of organization around government support, and it's a real problem. And as I think, you know, you point out in the film, a lot of these people didn't want to leave their homes. They didn't want to go. They had to go. Uh, the white people had to run in many cases because it, violence just got to a level um, because people weren't being taken care of. Uh, so let's take a look at, um, at the year 2000. In 1990, uh, the population in Spanish Lake was um, predominantly 80% white and most of the residents were over 50. Well, the 10 years uh, following that, the population shifted from majority uh, white to majority black. Most of the households along with that shift were majority single parent household with uh, a huge percentage of those being under the poverty line. So the number of children in Spanish Lake living in poverty increased 200% in 10 years. There was not a response to that change by the by San Luis County. Sidewalks were not built. Um, there were not enough schools. There were no, zero, nada, not one social service agency working in Spanish Lake. Now that is for 23,000 residents, for a population that has changed, so one third of it is below the age of 18, where you've got a population of about 11%, I think it's 11, in poverty, not one, not one. So what happened as, uh, I mean, this is sort of as the government decided to shift the population of people from Pruitt Ico. I mean, part of it was that it was unincorporated, right? Spanish Lake stayed unincorporated because they wanted to have less government involvement. And the irony is they ended up with becoming the, the, the dumping ground for the government because they had no protection from that. But, but as a homeowner myself, I think, you know, as I'm watching your film, I think what an incredible, you know, sort of uh, conundrum, right? Like for the community, because on the one hand, there is there are people that benefited from this. Who were those people? Because I, the homeowners actually even sold their houses for more as they left, right? For the most part. Some did. Some did. There was like a financial incentive given to them to kind of get out. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Some did. The early, the early people that left did have an incentive to leave. The real, some real estate agents would tell them, hey, if you leave now, you'll get everything for your house. Um, but then some of them, the longer they stayed, the more that they would deck them in terms of their, their selling price. And sometimes they, they would do this loss. So let's say, you know, a white person selling their house for 89000 but they really only sell it for eighty. There's like a $9,000 difference. Sometimes the real estate agents wouldn't tell them that they're actually getting eighty-nine for them. They'll mark them up to the black people that, that move in and sell it for ninety-five, and they don't know this. So there, there's a markup that happens to these houses after the white people leave. And then a lot of the mortgages that the black people get for the, to buy the houses are usually um, at the high rates. 
um, and we saw a lot of the mortgage crisis come about because of this. Mm -hmm. And that Spanish Lake was hit extremely hard by the mortgage crisis because so many African Americans were given these these high rate loans that ended up just bottoming out. Picking them, yeah. Mm. Subprime mortgage crisis. Quite a few reports have talked about the disproportionate impact that that had on black people, non-white people in total. No surprise there either. Uh, unless you have, do you have a comment you want to get in about that clip or? I think it's pretty self-explanatory. I would agree. I also think it's important uh, you pointed out that a part of this flushing of black people was done deliberately to minimize political power of black people in St. Louis County. Can you touch on that? Sure. I mean, I think with um, any population, uh, any minority, whether it's Bosnian, black, whatever, um, they tend to be kind of quarantined in certain areas. In St. Louis, um, <laughs> no, in St. Louis, um, if we go back to the period of 1940s, 1950s, when civil rights movement was happening, um, there was a lot of fear of how, how cities were going to be integrated. And with, if, if, they, if African Americans were going to be integrated into the suburbs, how was that going to be done? What neighborhoods would be integrated? And at that time, there was a lot of racism in the suburbs because some of them were outright racist. Some of them were fearful of the unknown, and some of them were just fearful because they were maybe lower class white that for some reason their investments would be affected by having black people live in their neighborhoods. That fear is very much prominent in my film, Spanish Lake, because um, we're dealing with the lowest echelon of the white population in terms of economics. Um, so the, that whole planning process of, okay, how are we going to integrate the suburbs? Because all the jobs had moved to the suburbs from the city, and the African-American community lived in the city. So the northern St. Louis suburbs were basically redlined. That's when I spoke earlier about the disproportionate amount of apartments that were built up in the North County suburbs. And um, so, you know, that area was chosen to not only just integrate, but basically resegregate um, black population north. And then the clips that you see from that interview, you'll see an interactive map. And you can see the, the path of migration of the black population north. And it's a very direct route north. You don't see it moving any other direction. And who was the uh, first black congressman uh, in this area? Uh, William Clay. William and Clay. that was in 1969. Hmm. And this effort to curtail, reduce uh, the political power, potential political power of black people, where they uh, were, I guess this would be like, 80s, 90s uh, in St. Louis County uh, were black people uh, organizing, because I mean, we've heard a lot of that uh, in Ferguson over the last month that they do not have uh, what they call a diverse police department. They don't have, I think they've only got three uh, black police officers in Ferguson. They don't have, uh, I think, the almost exclusively white local government. And some of the folks have responded that a part of this is because some of the black people, because they've got all of these stops and tickets and warrants and what have you, that many of the black people are not eligible to vote. Were there a lot of black people organizing and voting uh, in, at this time period? What was the fear that black people were going to do something politically? What was that based on? 
Um, in the 1940s, St. Louis City had its first black alderman. That was very revo- revolutionary at the time. And uh, it was also seen as kind of a political threat. Um, in the 1930s and 1940s, during the Industrial Revolution, when there was a lot of black migration north because a lot of the, the farming uh, equipment had changed and jobs weren't needed, a lot of black families moved north to find work. St. Louis was north from the south, and it was one of the first cities that received a large migration of black people into the cities. So um, the fact that they were being um, successful in the new the labor unions and getting work and also rising up the political ladder in St. Louis was definitely seen as a threat by the white um, governmental officials at the time. Um, part of the reason they moved them into that Crocodile complex was to break up their community, which was called Mill Creek Valley. It was this, I won't go, I don't want to go too far into to the history because I know your time is limited, but um, by moving people, especially by breaking up communities, you are breaking up power. And the northern suburbs of St. Louis, before the black people moved in, were primarily lower class white people, middle to lower, lower class white people. And a lot of those people um, weren't very educated. They weren't very politically active. And a lot of those areas were unincorporated. And unincorporated means, you know, there's not a formed municipality that rules their, their land. They're, they're ruled by St. Louis County officials, which are the rich white people. And they're the people that run the police force, like in Ferguson, exclusively white, exclusively rich. They don't answer to anybody. So those northern suburbs were already kind of powerless to begin with, and they weren't receiving many resources in terms of tax dollars, and they weren't participatory in their government. So when the area was resegregated to more of a black population, that those same characteristics carried over. So you have unincorporated areas that wield very little political power. You don't, those tax dollars from those areas aren't being used in their areas. They're, they're being used to serve the rich white neighborhoods. And um, that um, just in general, the, the fact that you have so many people that are underrepresented makes them um, weak politically. Hmm. Another aspect of this uh, deliberate effort to keep black people disenfranchised and with minimal power uh, you talked about was uh, in the Pruitt-Igo housing development that they, at that time, uh, did not permit uh, black fathers to be present in the home even if they had a job. Uh, Can you touch on that? Yeah, yeah. There's a great documentary called The Pruitt-Igo Myth. And it kind of works as the prequel to my film. And I encourage all the listeners out there to watch it. It's a great, great documentary. And it explains a lot of the problems that we have today, um, especially in St. Louis. Um, Part of the protocol for families that moved into Prudigo at the time was um, for women that were asking for government aid that had families that to move into Prudigo, their husbands um, were not allowed to live with them because... Um, and, and the, the husband could have even been out of work. It wasn't even um, about financial. It was something they, I think, basically intended to break the nuclear family in St. Louis to encourage government dependency, to, um, government dependence, and um, illegitimate children. And it, and um, Prudigo was a disaster. It was 15 years, and it was destroyed. Um, that community um, fell into a lot of drugs and violence. And a lot of those people after Prudigo was destroyed were moved into Spanish Lake in Ferguson. And um, a lot of the problems that plagued Prudigo um, are plaguing north suburbs now, including where Mike Brown lived. 
Well, I think some of the listeners there, they are familiar uh, with that film. Uh, see if we can even get the filmmaker on the program. Uh, some of the, the commentary uh, that I've seen about uh, your work, some of the folks have said that it would have been better if you had uh, maybe some urban planners uh, in the film to kind of uh, give some expert testimony on some of these issues. Was that something that you discussed, or was that a factor that you thought about including? Oh, we have some in there. I don't know who made those comments, but um, we have an African-American man who works for HUD, the House of Urban Development in St. Louis. He spoke um, in depth about Section 8 housing. We have an equal opportunity housing um, specialist who is also African-American. He speaks in depth about a lot of these issues. Um, we have the assistant secretary to um, the head of the federal um, government for um, HUD, Section 8 housing, and he um, he's an incredible resource. He's also African-American. So um, I, I don't agree with that comment at all. I'm going to get that review uh, so I can read exactly and tell you exactly where they uh, said it from, but I, I, I will pull it up. That uh, What stands out to me, you said it seemed like a lot of the folks that you mentioned that they were uh, black people, African-Americans, that you said maybe uh, <laughs> maybe that influenced their, their view that they didn't think these folks were experts. Uh, and the person might not have seen the film. I don't, I don't know if they wrote the review having seen the film or not. Um, it also, uh, in one of the reviews, uh, I'm reading, this is uh, How Ferguson Became Ferguson, urgent documentary Spanish Lake tracks a St. Louis suburbs shift from white to black. Uh, they write, talking about one of the, the white subjects in your film, where she says, I don't know if I can say this on tape. One woman says, her eyes flit about before she adds, when the first blacks moved in, that's when the fighting started. Soon, though, she's relaxed enough to guffaw at memory of local whites shooting black Santa decorations off the roof. Is that accurate? Yeah, that seems correct, yeah. Wow, wow. Look out for that in the film. I, for me, that stood out because I heard a lot of the white people who were giving reasoning for the fear that you talked about where the real estate agent would come in and say, uh-oh, uh, one of those families moved in. You might want to sell. Uh, if you don't, your property value could drop. And uh, you even commented that the real white real estate investors or agents, they didn't have to do a lot. They could just say that to one person, and then it would spread. White residents would be talking amongst themselves about, oh, my God, this influx, uh, we gotta, we got to sell our property, and it would kind of spread on its own. Um, were white people willing to talk to you on camera uh, and, and reveal some of these incidents? Yeah, yeah. I think that's some of the best moments of the film. Um, I don't know if it's because, I mean, partially because I was a resident of that area and partially because I'm white, maybe they felt more comfortable to be open about it. And, you know, but it's something you can't deny. The area had gone through um, a very fast racial resegregation, and uh, it, it's on a lot of people's minds, and uh, it's still a taboo subject to speak about. So it's like therapy, I think, for certain people to be able to talk about it. And I'm fortunate that they did because I think it's um, invaluable to learn from for all audiences to hear these kind of conversations. Hmm. The shooting, the uh, decorations off the roof, the Black Santa decorations, um, it just, I heard folks saying that some of their reasoning for moving was that they were afraid, the violence, the schools were deteriorating and what have you. Um, I just, I feel like in a lot of these instances, or it's not a feel, uh, I, my observation is that frequently it's presented as though white people are violent, or excuse me, black people are violent, black people are, are criminal uh, in some way, but 
that sort of thing gets minimized uh, in terms of what white people are doing. Uh, shooting at res- I mean, if you're shooting Christmas decorations on a house, I mean, that could be someone could have gotten injured. That could have easily hit a window and struck someone who was an occupant in the residence. Uh, did you get a lot of, of stories of that nature uh, in the film, where white people were talking about these sort of acts? Um, I, in terms of the interviews, when I, I got a lot of the stories, yes, I heard some white on black violence and I did my best to incorporate, um, both into the film and not have it just be all the whites were committing the crime and all the blacks were committing the crime. That scene that you're referencing is a great scene. Um, because it does show how some of the black, um, residents that were first moving into the community were not welcomed. If anything, they were threatened or um, made targets. Absolutely. And so, yeah, I wanted to be as accurate as I could. Hmm. I read a criticism that said they, they felt like you didn't have enough uh, black participants in the film. Do you think that's accurate? Um, one response I have to that is that my film is about the area of Spanish Lake. It's the history of the town from its inception to today. And my film Followed it all the way from 1805 to, to you know 2011, and Spanish Lake was primarily a white neighborhood, in, I mean white area, until the mid 90s. And so the proportion of white interviews in the film to black um, is reflective of the chronology of the city. Now, my film is not about race. It's not about a 50/50. It's about Spanish Lake. Um, if I were to make a film about race, I would have had it exactly 50-50. But I think where the film stands right now, it's about 60% white and 40% black. So that's reflective of the, the town's history. Hmm. Okay. Um, oh, I'd make sure I got that review. This was from the stlouistoday.com, and it's uh, Nervous North County Whites dominate documentary Spanish Lake uh, and the comments at the end of the uh, of the review it's uh, this is a fascinating story and for the past 30 years it's been echoed in St. Louis in South St. Louis but as a movie Spanish Lake misses the opportunity to include other voices very few of the interviewees are black and we don't get a vivid sense of the tension between the two communities. The small bit of archival material included here is similar to what was offered in the fine recent documentary, The Pruitt Ego Myth. Uh, but without any objective experts to provide an overview, we end up with a useful but monochromatic oral history that can leave outsiders saying, no comprende. Uh, so that was the criticism, no objective experts to provide an overview. And you said that you feel like you do include the experts in the film, correct? Well, one thing, I don't know, um, if you scan down on that review, at the very end of it, there's a little, um, says that this review is based on an early version of the film and it's not reflective of the final product. Mm-hmm. Um, Gil Williams, the reviewer of that, he reviewed a two-year-old version of the film that I gave him just to get some criticism back two years ago. He didn't even bother to look at the final product. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he published that review did upset me, and I think it was a very unfair, um, just in terms of ethics, thing to do. So that that review for that for that early cut, yeah, that was accurate, but that wasn't what everybody's seeing today. Oh, okay. Glad we got that taken care of. Folks can check that out uh, when they watch the film. Um, what what has been? The, I almost feel like it's it needs to be split in two. Like what what was the response from white St. Louis residents prior? to Michael Brown, and then what was the response after the shooting death of Michael Brown? To the film? Yes, sir. Um, From white residents, I would say uh, most of them are still just as supportive and anxious to have the film released. 
some of them, um, when the Warenberg Theater chain banned us, um, they were scheduled to play the film and then they canceled. Um, some of them were fearful. They thought that the film may encourage more violence or riots and stir up more racial tension in the area. And um, they didn't want the film to come out. So um, it's, a, it's a mix of both support and fear right now. Hmm. Did, did you feel there was any, I mean, you don't live there now, so you might not be the best person to gauge, but uh, did you feel that that was realistic, that doing this film might spark uh, what they call rioting or disturbances of some sort? Well, I'm still, you know, I've spent three years making the film. My dad lives in Ferguson, and I just spent, you know, two weeks with him just a couple of months ago before all this went down in Ferguson. So I feel like I still have a pretty good idea of how the races are in St. Louis in that area. Um, I would say, no, I don't think it would have sparked riots, but I think it may have sparked more political activism, especially on part of the people that lived in the North suburbs and African-American communities, that they can see the systemic issues at hand that created a lot of this situation and can see that it's more rooted in a, in a governmental system and that the people that moved away, some of them were manipulated and that not to, not to hear, see it so much from a rejection point of view, but to see how people can move out of fear, ignorance, or be related. Um, and having a message of coming together in spite of some differences to see that um, the economic oppression that affects both races and that really the people that are most powerful are only, they're only interested in themselves and their own agenda. Um, because a lot of the white people that moved from Spanish Lake um, are upset about it. They didn't want to move... And um, I, I don't think it's a clear cut. I don't think you can really clear cut all these people that moved away as being complete racist. Some were, some weren't. And it's really up to the audience to watch the film and see when the big changes happened, what all aspects were at play, and how does the system work? How much of it is dependent on racism and so how much of it isn't? And uh, so that's what I want. I want all the audiences to walk away to see it from a systemic view versus just a strictly racial view. Hmm. Uh, my view, the system is racism, white supremacy, but obviously we do not agree there. Did they, did, uh, no, the AMC, they banned the film, and then Warrenberg, which I guess is a local outlet, did they give you the same reasoning that they thought it would provoke uh, some sort of criminal activity? They were, uh, AMC was a lot more vague. They said they, uh, they, they had films that were stronger contenders in terms of audience interest. That's what they, they said to us, which I find very funny because we have so many people in the St. Louis area that are anxious to see the film. It's been in the newspapers. Um, so I find it curious and not even addressing the issue at hand. Fascinating. Uh, I told uh, one of our listeners, Lashish, Lashes, uh, she said that it reminded her of uh, The Spook Who Sat Out the Door, uh, which was banned uh, during its original uh, release based on uh, Sam Greenlee, who passed away earlier this year, his book by the same name. I uh, said it reminded me of uh, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, which is celebrating its 25-year anniversary this year, uh, that a lot of white people expressed the exact same concern uh, about his film that uh, black people would riot and run amok uh, once they watched the film. And he just thought that was absurd uh, because I, I myself cannot think of a single film uh, in my lifetime where upon people seeing it, they went out and rioted. Uh, I'm just, I'm not aware of that phenomenon. Um, if, can you think, is, are you aware of a film where people went and watched it and they went and, and rioted? Yeah, actually there was a film in 1979 called The Warriors 
and it's a film that deals with gangs in New York. And there was a series of gang violence that happened after the screenings of that film, and the studio actually pulled the film from theaters because of rioting. Wow, that is fascinating. I have learned something. The Warriors, I'll have to do some uh, research on that. Um, I had to get, since you said that your mom, her first husband, was a black male, uh, that seemed to be another undercurrent in the film, a part of this quote-unquote fear that white people had, uh, that black people were going to move in and marry their daughters. Was that something that cropped up a lot from what you were hearing from white people or black people? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that's a fear, like you said, on both sides. But I think um, I think that points to more like a psychosexual insecurity with white males um, that may have repressed attraction to black females or whatever. I mean, obviously that's their issue. If they're fearful, if their daughters would be interested in a, dating a black man or any of that stuff. Those, those fears and those prejudices come from some kind of strange sexual insecurity and they're projected onto these kids and then often the kids don't know any better and the kids are you know confused or made to repress their own true feelings and those are much more complicated issues but they're definitely at play and I think more so even in the rich white neighborhoods than the middle class white neighborhoods because I, I saw a lot more interracial dating in my neighborhoods than you would in the rich neighborhoods. Hmm. That's fascinating. What the uh what evidence, uh, if someone, you know, called you on the carpet to, to say, explain uh, how you've come to this conclusion about this psychosexual tension uh, that exists where uh, white men might be repressing their own attraction to black females or non-white females, what evidence would you present? I think if you look at a lot of pornography, there's a lot of interracial pornography that's very popular in America. Um, I think that would be one example. But I just think that extreme fear then it's not about their white son dating black girls. It's about their white daughters being with black men. And there's some kind of fear, I think. Maybe it's even more so about white men versus black men psychosexually that they feel threatened or they feel intimidated or they don't want any kind of mixing going on in their family because that would, that would force the diversity into their own family. I think it's a mixture of all of those things. And, I mean, that's just... That's just across the board. That's throughout a lot of America. Hmm. Fascinating. Fascinating. Um, I, I read, um, or actually I did not read, uh, it was in that same interview, uh, the Bring Your Own documentary uh, with uh, Andy Timoner, um, that she asked kind of towards the end of these segments uh, if you had any thoughts of, of kind of going back and doing an amendment to the film, uh, given what's transpired uh, in Ferguson the past month, and you said no. Is that correct? Yeah, I did. Yeah, no. So I just, first off, you know, the film took me three years, and I'm broke, and I'm in debt on top of it. Um, so I literally can't afford to do any more documentary work. Um, that would be my main reason for, for saying no, but also spending five years researching white flight, resegregation, the famous history, all these things. Um, I, I just I need to move on to some fresh subject matter, and uh, I want to leave it up to some other younger, um, more you know, excited person who's been down filming the events in Ferguson already to put together a new kind of perspective on what's going on. I feel like Spanish Lake and this film is its own unique kind of creation, and um, I've done my job with it. Somebody else can, can do the job with Ferguson, I think. 
If money wasn't a concern, would the answer still be no, definitively? Um, I wouldn't say no definitively, but like I said, you know, I, I, I never set out to be a, um, a documentarian my whole life. I always wanted to direct feature films and do different things. And since I've been researching this for five years, um, I feel like I, I know it fairly well. Um, I just need to change it up. You know, I'm just one of those people in general. I like variety. I like being a filmmaker because your jobs are limited and then you move on to something completely different. And, um, you know, going back home and, you know, going to these old neighborhoods, it's time for me to kind of release the past to a certain degree. And that's part of the reason why I made the film was to, to make closure with a lot of things from my, from my childhood. So. Understood. Understood. Um, I, I have to say I've seen enough of uh, at least my view. Uh, I think a lot of the response to what has happened uh, is not sincere uh, as a black person, as a victim of white supremacy. Uh, I'm highly skeptical uh, when people come out and start jumping up and down, uh, white people, really anybody, but especially white people saying that they are concerned uh, about black lives uh, because this sort of thing happens all the time, every day, and I don't see this sort of uh, outrage and concern uh, for a black person, male, female, or child, uh, being killed. Uh, and I feel like uh, it's not a feel I observe. Uh, there seem to be increasing groups who are profiting or at least coming in to just try to get some camera time uh, with this event. It's even an organization they're selling T-shirts that have some phrase about racism on them, and uh, they're saying that they're going to donate some of the proce uh, proceeds uh, to different organizations or what have you related to what's going on in Ferguson. But uh, I think I would, uh, I would be skeptical of you if you were going back and doing something saying, wow, he is really capitalizing uh, on what's going down in Ferguson, uh, going back and amending the DVD. Um, so yeah, on the one hand, I, I appreciate uh, that this kind of being finality, the film was done before all this happened, and anybody else that wants to do a documentary or, or any other project on Ferguson, have at it, do their thing. Um, with regards to, I guess, the, the actual case itself, since you've done this research, uh, this is an area that you're very familiar with. I think you said eight miles. Ferguson's about eight miles from Spanish Lake and where you grew up. Um, with that, not uh, your parents still being there, uh, with the case, do you think, based on what you've seen, do you think uh, Darren Wilson, Officer Wilson, is going to be uh, ultimately indicted in this? There's going to be a trial with all this? Hmm. Do I think there's going to be a trial? No. Do I think he's going to get off? Yes. Um, I, I think St. Louis County, that the government at large, I think they have so much power, they have so much money, and the way they've handled this case, the lack of transparency, the lack of taking any kind of accountability, the fact that they let him flee, um, that all points to the, that they're not even abiding by basic principles or just by the system at, at all to make me think that they're going to just decide to follow the rules now after all of this. And um, there's much more at play here than even the racial aspect of it. Yes, there's there is the abuse of police power. There is the racial discrimination. But in the way that they handled the Ferguson riots with tear gassing and with tanks and with forced military presence and the suppression of the right to protest, the suppression of just the right of freedom of speech, the way they've manipulated the media, those point to much bigger governmental issues to me and concerns. And um, that's just abuse, complete abuse of power as a government that um, 
unless the people revolt both black and white. Um, if you just have a minority that's protesting this and you don't have much support, you're not going to, the media and the, uh, the rest of the community at large needs to be behind it for it to, to be um, executed. And right now we're not seeing that. Hmm. I, I would agree. I think I said the same uh, comment about I do not expect uh, Officer Wilson to be indicted. Um, I said that about three weeks ago at this point, and I've seen nothing to, to change my view. Um, I, my, my only response would be even the issues that you raised about in terms of the manipulation of the press uh, and police abuses of power and uh, infringing upon uh, citizens, U.S. citizens' rights to protest. Uh, I still view that as the system of white supremacy at work. Uh, if these were predominantly white people out protesting, I think the coverage of this would be totally different. The response to this would be totally different. And I think there would be massive outrage way beyond Missouri if it had been white people out protesting any issue. Uh, and the response was tanks and tear gas and rubber bullets. It would be a diametrically opposite response. Uh, it would not be tolerated at all, and some people would be looking for new jobs uh, in the St. Or excuse me, Ferguson Police Department, St. Louis County Police Department, and anyone else uh, who was responsible for white citizens being treated in that manner. But since it's mostly black people, yeah, that's that standard operating procedure. And I mean, there's a long history uh, of that being the response when it's black people who are protesting some sort of abuse, frequently police misconduct, that is the exact scenario. Uh, we just had a white uh, professor at program uh, about two weeks ago who was talking about how all of this happened almost 50 years to the day. Uh, the exact same thing played out in New York where an unarmed black teenager was shot and killed, and they had the exact same response. Uh, state of emergency, lots of armed white people out brutalizing uh, protesters in the streets, beatings, arrestings, exact same response. Uh, and this happens on a pretty frequent basis. But, you know, that's my view on all this. Um, do you, are you, as a white person, what, what is your take? Because you touched on it kind of briefly earlier. What is your analysis of Officer Wilson, not just has he not been arrested and wasn't even identified for about a week after the shooting, now he has received close to a half million dollars in economic support from white people. How do you interpret that? I think that by funding that that, uh, that coalition or whatever for him, I think there's a lot of racial bias behind it. And it's a, it's a way to vote with your money. And the way that the media has framed everything has, has fueled that, that racism. And I think this has become more of an issue of race than it is about the issue at hand and the miscarrying of justice and the manipulation of the media. Um, people that fund it are, are funding it probably for the wrong reasons and not even knowingly. And that's what worries me about this whole thing. Um, one thing that I'd like to point out that has bothered me the most about this, this whole situation is um, there were a lot of live feed um, footages of the Ferguson riots were happening for several days. You could you know, click on YouTube or Alex Jones or whatever and watch the events unfold in real time. And a lot of the journalists were down on the ground filming everything. And, and some of those live feeds, they have these comments that, viewers can put onto the screen just what they're, you know, feeling or whatever. And some of these people were writing, you know, I'm bored, not enough tear gas, someone should shoot already, all these things that um, I couldn't believe 
I couldn't believe that people could be so insensitive and so desensitized to violence and to the fact that it's American government suppressing their own people, um, regardless of color or economic status, that um, we could be so um, not only desensitized, but so, you know, just have a complete lack of empathy. Um, that points to a much, much bigger problem. That if, um, if we can not only allow and um, be insensitive to this abuse of power, but also use it for entertainment, um, that points to some much bigger problems in terms of how the American um, populace is psychologically. And uh, that, that to me is kind of what is the problem. Like you, you pointed out, had these protesters been white, had this been more of a white issue, it would have been handled very differently by the media. But <clears throat> I think it comes in stages, and I think government manipulation comes in stages. They start with the lowest, and then they move up. So right now, in terms of racism and economic power, that black population in St. Louis is the lowest on the totem pole. But if they can get away with that, then it moves further up. Then the lower class white people would be made targets next. And if that's acceptable and tolerated by, you know, the, the citizens at large, then nobody is safe. And that, to me, is really what people should be focusing on and not using this as a, a way to kind of bait people for racism. Hmm. That's, I, uh, I've heard a lot of that. I feel like I've heard many, many people present that narrative. Uh, they, there was a clip where it was, it was a succession of people saying that this is not a race issue, this is a justice issue, this is not a race issue, this is a human rights issue. And I, I totally uh, disagree. Uh, and I will say it again, when a white person does that, in my view, that is a deliberate act of racism uh, because they are just not being truthful uh, about things. As I've said, uh, even I think there was some agreement, uh, unless I misheard, uh, that if it was a white person, this would have been totally different. I would even say if this is a class issue, there are enough black police officers, maybe not in Ferguson, but there are enough black enforcement officers across this country. There should be cases of black officers shooting poor white people if this was a class issue. I'm not aware of that being the case. Black officers going out and randomly shooting white people and then saying, well, I thought this person had a gun or a knife or they lunged at me or looked funny, whatever the case may be, that doesn't happen. Uh, it tends to be black people overwhelmingly uh, who are at the mercy abuse of enforcement officials, white or non-white. Uh, the issue in Ferguson, again, if it was white people out protesting, this would have been totally different. Uh, the fact that, as you said, that you saw people online this was entertainment for them, which does not surprise me at all. Uh, there's a white person uh, at Harvard University. His name is uh, Jason Silverstein. Uh, he did a study last year. I played it again. He did a study last year at Harvard uh, called The Empathy Gap, where white people do not empathize with black people. Uh, it's, and it's not even just white people. It's people on the whole do not empathize with black people. That, in my opinion, gets to the root of the system is the system of white supremacy, which conditions everyone uh, to despise, mistreat, look down upon black people. The totem pole, the people at the lowest are 
black people, and it goes up from there. But that is the system of white supremacy. And I just, in my opinion, if, if we're not speaking about that truthfully, that these sort of things can and are expected to happen to black people, and that's what it's supposed to be. People are not supposed to care. If anything, this is entertainment where I can watch this and, you know, root for more tear gas, you know, shoot more of the protesters, arrest more of them. That's, I kind of said that this is kind of just racial theater. I feel like that's why I said I feel like a lot of this is very insincere where people can make some memes and uh, make some videos and, and have fun for the summertime and then until they move on to whatever the next big issue tends to be. Uh, and that's kind of what I see here. But uh, in my opinion, it's, it's clearly uh, racism, white supremacy. And if it were white people uh, in this position, it would be, and, and I would even submit it would not be happening. Uh, I cannot imagine any circumstance where if Darren Wilson was a black person, he would have a half million dollars for shooting someone in the line. I cannot imagine under any circumstances that being a world that I live in. I cannot imagine under any circumstances a black officer shooting an unarmed white king and him not being arrested, them not releasing his identity for a week, uh, and a month passing, and there's still no decision about it, and even a lot of people saying that, hey, we're not treating this officer correctly by trying to rush or imply that he did something incorrect. All of these things, the root of it, it is the system of racism, white supremacy. It's not a justice or human rights issue unless we're framing it that black people under the system of racism, white supremacy are not treated in a just manner, and their human rights are regularly, perpetually, hourly trampled and ignored. Uh, I could be in error, but I, I, I've heard a lot. Your, your viewpoint I've heard expressed a lot over the past month, and I just I don't think it's accurate. Um, if the folks that are listening in, if you all have a question you want to get before uh, our guest, Mr. Morton, uh, exit, uh, feel free. The number again is 760-569-7676, and the code is 564-943. Pound. Uh, press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, the number again, 760-569-7676. And the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. Um, when you say that the media, you feel that they are pushing some sort of, I'll get the call first. The person that dialed in, uh, our caller in Alabama, did you have a question for Mr. Morton? Your line should be open. Um, yes, can I be heard? You are a little low. If you could speak up, please. Oh, I apologize. Um, yeah, well, I have a few questions. I will, my first question would be, to ask him, do you think how uh, white people who are not white supremacists, how have they been good allies? Do you, do, do you think they have been good allies to um, victims of racism? Do I think that there are some good white allies to the black community? Is that the question? No, I'm saying like like the allies, the so-called allies, do you think they have made a difference, like an impact on the um, system of white supremacy um, for for the benefit of victims of racism? I definitely think there are. I, I think there are few in numbers. Um, there, there was an activist in St. Louis, her name was Kay Dry, and she's still alive, and she was a pioneer 
Um, she was white, and she, she came from a rich family. And during the time of resegregation in St. Louis, she had an organization that um, when, when certain neighborhoods were transitioning to black neighborhoods, she went around and tried to encourage the white residents to stay and to, to re-educate them on the values of living in an integrated community and spent lots of money and hard labor into trying to stem that tide of resegregation. And I worked with her a little bit on this film. Um, I think that's just one example. I think there are a few. I don't think there's nearly as many as there need to be, though. Okay, so is that safe to say that most white people are white supremacists? Since there, since you said that there are not as many as you would like it to be, I I think there are um, a lot of racist people in terms of um, their 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 property um, excuse, value. I, excuse me, I, I was just asking. I was just asking, like. Does that mean that more most white people are white supremacists since you said that most white people are not allies of the victims of racism? I think that people um, in general are only concerned with what affects them in their life, what happens in their backyard, and that's for, across the board. So if white people don't see why they should be concerned with other communities such as Ferguson, then they're most likely not going to get involved because it doesn't directly affect them in their eyes. And I think that's so. That's so is that is that is that your way of saying that most white people are victims of? Is that your way of saying that most white people are white supremacists and and they are not allies of victims of racism? Is because I'm confused. I'm trying to understand. Because uh, to I me, that's say, like either a yes or a no question because. You said that most white people are not allies of ending white supremacy. So if they're not allies of ending white supremacy, there's only other one, other slide. Unless you can create a new one that I don't know about. I, I think that, you know, I think there's a difference between somebody who is um, not concerned with the welfare of, like, Ferguson but I don't know if all those white people would necessarily harbor hate against black people. Well, I'm saying Ferguson, I'm saying Ferguson is not the only place that racism happened. We're talking about a global system. So if they're, not, if they're not in favor of ending white supremacy, where do they stand? That's my question to you. I think that people are just concerned with their own well-being, and that as long as that. So so uh, so is that so so in that case, if you saying they're in favor of their own well-being. Is white supremacy a part of their well-being, of white people's well-being? Yes, I think it's it's self-interest. So I think if something doesn't affect them directly, then they're not concerned. But that that could be for any other group, even white groups. You know, the the rich white people don't care about the poor white people. The poor white people don't care about the middle-class black people. The middle-class people, black people sometimes don't care about the poor black people. I think it's it's the class system, and but I think that the majority of it, you know, I think is the, the white and black difference is so large that yeah, I think that there's a lack of apathy for um for a lot of the white the black. Uh, see, see, I think sure. I think I think you I, excuse me, I think that you are being very misleading because it's like you're not saying you're saying like a lack of apathy, uh, uh, you know that they don't sympathize with. With black, that's not. I'm. I'm not even asking whether they sympathize or not. 
I'm saying, like, if they are not against white supremacy, that means they're for it. You either for it or you're against it. You know, it, you like right now, you, like, that's why I say I think, and I could be wrong. I'm just suspecting. But I'm suspecting that you are consciously practicing racism because I'm asking, this is not even a confusing question. I'm asking a clear-cut question. Um, mm-hmm. I'll do respect. I'm just asking a clear-cut question. Um, if they're not for it, if they're not for ending white supremacy, they're for keeping white supremacy going. So I'm not asking are they sympathetic because I think you said that most white people are not sympathetic. I'm just saying that it's like a clear-cut, by the way you explained it, it's like a clear-cut thing whether they for it or against it. But that's, I think we're going around and around on that one. We want to agree yeah. on that one. I, and- yeah, it's really tricky, and I think I think one thing. I don't think it's tricky. I just think you're being misleading. I don't think it's tricky at all. But my thing, my sec, my second question, I would like to ask you: um, How would it benefit you personally if the system of white supremacy were in? How would that benefit you if the system of white supremacy were in today? Well, I think a lot of the money. And, you know, there's this whole 99% of the U.S. is, you know, low on the economic scale, and then there's the 1% with all the money. That affects me because while I have to struggle to pay my bills every month, there's some rich, usually white person who doesn't have to think about money at all. So if the money is redistributed to be equal amongst all the races and or at least given more of a, a um, fair percentage, then that power... I'm not subjected to somebody else's higher power because right now I'm vulnerable just as you are vulnerable, just, you know, maybe not as vulnerable, but still vulnerable. And, you know, I am, I have, we are all slaves to our jobs. We are powerless without being able to pay our rent. We are powerless without being able to pay our insurance. So we are in effect tied to the system. And um, I think it's, it would be a better world if money, if we were less reliant on um, this economic system and that money wasn't able to control us overall. So I, I, I think it, it benefits everybody. All right, and this is my last question. It's just something that I think this is one that I always wondered about and I just like to ask. Um, I asked this question on the program before, but I think to me it's very um, a constructive question, I believe, because it helped me with a lot of insight um, on the mindset of white white people in general um, is practicing white supremacy. Do you think it is more fun to practice white supremacy, or do you think it's more hard work than it is like the fun part? Is it like fun, or is it just like hard work? Which one is it? Like, do y'all do it out of sport, or do y'all do it, you know, for the benefit? You know, is it fun or, you know, I don't know if I'm being clear when I ask the question. No, I understand. And, and one thing I, I would think, I think that it's actually inherent in a lot of people and they're not even aware of it. I think a lot of people have biases and have opinions on culture and black culture and have feelings that they're not even really aware of where they come from, but they do play into the white supremacist um, system. So um, people have biases that they're not even aware of. So I, I think that the system is at play, and it's not even um, it's not even realized. So it's on autopilot. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. But 
so this is not I don't like again I think you're not answering my question. Honestly I could be wrong because I don't I think when um the murderer of Michael Brown was raised had all that money raised for him, those people were consciously making racist remarks. That don't seem like when they were making those racist remarks um on on his um charity site or whatever like that. I don't mm-hmm. think that that was unconscious. You say when they were making those racist remarks, it was unconscious, but I don't think that was unconscious. You know, oh, yeah, um, I think some, some of them are. Some of them are conscious, absolutely. Some for sure, and that that so, that anger comes comes from yeah, it's both a racist place, but also from a class place. Because um, mm-hmm. I think that they're 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 trying to categorize all these people as criminals and. Um, lower class people as being below them, and on top of the fact that they're African American, so it's like a, a double kind of. Could I ask, let me ask you one more question? Because I know I'm, I'm gonna just leave it alone after this. I will say that you have confused me. I'm a victim of racism, and I'm easy to confuse. You have really confused me. I don't really get no answers because you was like it was it was a mis- they they don't practice it consciously, and then you went back and changed your words and did the shuffle and said, well, yeah, they did practice it constantly when they were making those more. So I'm confused, but I heard you say class. When you when you use class, are you talking about class meaning lacking moral character? Because you said, like, low class this and low class that. Because if you ask me, the low class would be the white supremacist. That is the low class because they lack moral character. They have no class. You know, white supremacy oh, no, I, is like a. Yeah. Go ahead. Remember that. No, I, I'm talking about economic class in terms of how much income somebody makes. Okay, okay. I just like to point that out because I don't think class is the correct word that should be used. I would say caste. I would say a caste system instead of a class system, because in my opinion, class is someone who has, you know, more character, who has morals, you know what I'm saying? And I think mm-hmm. white supremacy is very immoral. And I would mute my line and thank you for answering. And, you know, I'm still confused, but thank you for answering, though. Oh, no problem. Thank you. for. It was a pleasure talking to you. Uh, the caller, last four digits, 2658. Did you have a question for Mr. Morton? Your line should be open. Yes, sir. Uh, I have a question for the guests. Uh, In my view, the importance of conversing with white people, are you you a white man? I'm sorry, I missed that last part. There was a little bit of a cutout. What did you say? Are you a white man? I just got on the program. Yes. Yes, I am a white man. What I view as the importance of speaking with a white person uh, is to obtain information, valuable information that will help me solve the problem of racism, and it comes in only one form, one functional form, and I identify it as white supremacy. And in that, within that discourse, 
what I ask for out of that white person is two things, accuracy in the discourse and honesty in discourse. And in saying that, my question is, I believe I heard you say that rich, quote-unquote, black people creates, can create poor black people. And if you did say that, which I think I heard, I understand you were saying it, how does a, quote-unquote, rich black person create a poor black person, and if so, how do they do it without the assistance of a white person? I don't believe I said that. I don't know what exactly you're referring to, so I don't know how to answer that. It was just as the the, uh, caller from Alabama came on the line. Well, I, I was talking about a class system, I believe, with him in terms of, you know, there's rich white people, middle class, lower class. Then in the African-American community, there's rich, there's middle class, there's poor. And that not everybody is um, supportive or allied with these different groups. And that you can even have differences in the rich white neighborhood, I mean, the rich black neighborhood and the poor black neighborhood. Um, we're seeing even black flight happening in St. Louis where the rich African-Americans are moving from the predominantly black neighborhoods into the white neighborhoods for the quality of schools and or whatever resources are not in their other neighborhoods. So I was just saying that discrimination in terms of class does exist. So a financially wealthy non-white black person cannot create a poor financially black person, correct? I don't, unless they're a government official, I don't see how they could. Wait a minute now, wait a minute now. See, that's what I'm talking about of honesty and accuracy. Now you're giving an exception. I I didn't ask for any exceptions. I'll ask you again, sir. I'll ask you again, sir. Can a non-white black person create a poor black person? I would say yes. Now, because I originally asked that question, and you act like you didn't say it before. Now, uh, how can that take place? Well, if if a government official that is black is elected to represent the people that are underneath them, if they are black and lower class, um, if they don't, um, if they don't introduce legislature that benefits the people that they represent and makes them less off financially, um, that's an example. That's what I would say is the one exception to that. Yeah, absolutely. So under the system of racism and white supremacy, is there such thing as a non-white black person who is a quote-unquote elected official can work independently from the system of racism, and I say 
racism, white supremacy as the only functional system, work independently to whereas they can harm a black person without the help of a white person under the system of racism, white supremacy. Yes. Uh, I could be wrong, but I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, the host asked you, uh, well, not asked ask you, but uh, mentioned about his uh, definition of racism. Uh, what was your uh, response to his uh, definition? Uh, at the beginning of the program, I said I think there's a difference between somebody who is a white supremacist and someone who is a racist. And oh, okay, so they, what, there was there is somebody else. I was, yeah, I was just saying in my own view, those two those two words are not the same to me. They have there, there was a, there, there was a difference in, in, in with the with the uh, in your opinion of the definition. I think a racist is somebody who, and this oh, goes beyond all you have to, sir, sir, all you have to say right now is yes or no. I'm sorry. So the question is, do I think they're the same the, or the, not? The question, the question when, it, when it was presented to you, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Gus T. Renegade's definition, you did not totally agree with it, correct? That's correct. Oh, okay, okay. Because I, I, I wasn't... Uh, they hadn't tuned in at the beginning of the program. I think I understand why. No, no problems. No problems. Moving on, Gus. Moving forward. Um, I just wanted to get in uh, really quick uh, because you said that uh, you felt the media was playing up the racism aspect uh, with regards to the shooting of shooting death of uh, Michael Brown Jr. Um, are you saying that there are a lot of black people that I've seen uh, in St. Louis and around the world who've been saying that they think this is racism? Do you think that is the product of the quote-unquote media playing up or focusing on racism? Absolutely, and I, I think that different media outlets are owned by different corporations. And these different corporations have different political agendas according to what they believe in. And some of those corporations have connections to government. So um, depending if it's Fox News or CNN or whatever media is presenting it, they'll have a different slant in what is allowed to be put out as a news story versus what's not. So there is definitely agendas behind all media because they are ultimately owned by people that pull the strings. Hmm. And so just making sure I'm clear, you said you think some of these black people uh, who are saying that they think this is about racism in Ferguson, this is a product of the quote-unquote media. Uh, and are most of the people that are quote-unquote pulling the strings, these are white people? And I think it's a variety. And some of these corporations are owned by foreign interests, um, whether that be China, whether that be Japan, or um, even in the Middle East, um, you have to get to the root of who, who are the investors and the stockholders in these corporations. Hmm. Are you aware, can you name some non-white people who 
control, dictate what's going to be news on Fox, MSNBC, NPR, CNN, uh, some of the mainstream outlets, or if you can name any others, can you name some non-white people who would be in a position where they can make a decision with regards to what is going to be news and how that particular story is going to be covered? Um, I can think of one off the top of my head, Sony. Um, That's not a non-white person. That's not a non-white person. I said, can you name a non-white person who makes a final decision about this is going to be news or is in position to say this is how we are going to talk about these are the terms that we're going to use when we talk about what happened with Michael Ferguson or Dan Wilson. Can you name a non-white person who is in a position to make that sort of decision? I don't know any of those types of corporations, so I'm not able to speak accurately on that answer. Okay, I still said person. You said corporations. I said specific person, uh, and you can't know. Okay. No, because I would have to, I would have to know the head of those corporations to be able to answer that. Okay, that's what I thought. Um, I uh, just to me that, as I said, I've said repeatedly, it just does not make sense to me. Um, and even your statement earlier about, uh, and I've heard this. That's the other thing. I have heard what you're saying on the media. It's not like that has not been stated uh, over and over uh, over the past 45 days. I've heard, and on many media outlets, not just uh, some uh, off the cuff. Uh, small market uh, program or broadcast. I've heard this on NPR. I've heard this on CNN. I've heard this supported widely where people say that, hey, they are distracting. They're just trying to stir up a lot of tension with sales newspapers to get people riled up and focused on racism as opposed to focusing on justice or human rights. I've heard that articulated many times uh, since the beginning of August. Uh, in my view, if you're saying that what happens is you can commit these sort of infractions and disrupt or take away people's human rights, the right to protest, uh, or these police atrocities, if you can start out and have that committed against black people, then you can just move up the ladder and have that work against whomever, whomever else you want, poor white people, quote-unquote middle-class white people, blah, 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 and it can just go on from there. If that were the case, black people's uh, human rights and citizenship has been trampled on for centuries. I mean, that is a done deal like... 19th century, 17th century. I mean, they could have moved on to any other group that they wanted to, and I simply don't see that. Uh, certainly white people mistreat other white people. That's long-running as well. Uh, when you have a system of adjustments, there's a whole lot of mistreatment. But clearly, uh, I think the overwhelming evidence supports that black people in mass, whether it's poor black people, quote-unquote black people that have a few coins, even a black person, you said if, uh, they're a government official, black people are in no way, shape, or form treated the same way as white people period. Uh, and there's just tons of evidence on that. And I, I just feel like any, uh, I've said it repeatedly, I'll say it again, uh, when white people come out and make that sort of statement uh, or offer that as an explanation to these type of incidents, uh, I feel it's inaccurate. Uh, and it is an act, a willful, in my opinion, a willful, deliberate act of racism uh, to try to say that it's just economic oppression uh, and they're out to get us all and that sort of thing. It, it is just not being truthful. Uh, and I can only read that, that statement again uh, poor white people, uh, they are not interested uh, in unifying or allying with the black people at all. Uh, no, and I don't even know too many non-white people who are confused about that. Uh, from Forbes magazine, uh, maybe they're one of the groups that's uh, trying to promote and encourage people to think of racism, but in my view, this is an accurate study. Uh, 2007 by George Washington University sociology professor Gregory D. Squires comments on why most whites avoid racially diverse neighborhoods. They didn't say poor whites. They said most whites. Evidence indicates that it is the presence 
of blacks and not just neighborhood conditions often associated with blacks, e.g. bad schools, high crime, that accounts for white aversion to such areas. In one survey, whites reported that they would be unlikely to purchase a home that met their requirements in terms of price, number of rooms, and other housing characteristics in a neighborhood with good schools and low crime rates if there was a substantial representation of African Americans. All the direct quote, you all can read that uh, at Forbes magazine. Uh, some of our listeners, they just uh, wrote in as well that uh, some of your responses, it just it did not make sense uh, and that they uh, wholeheartedly disagree with any sort of uh, assertion uh, that this is really about class uh, or economics at the end of the day uh, and that poor white uh, people are somehow mistreated as well or somehow being oppressed. You, I think you were saying that you two are vulnerable, maybe not in the same way as a black person, but you two are vulnerable and we're all slave to our job, that they, they also they just did not see any logic to that at all. Uh, it just doesn't make sense and there just doesn't seem to be evidence to point it out. And I would also, I would again reference, uh, there have been a lot of reports even over the past two, three months uh, reporting how poor white people get way more advantages and do way better than poor black people. Uh, the reports we've read before where if it is a black person who has a college degree, no criminal record, they are less likely to be hired than a white person who is a high school dropout. Uh, that report as well as the study uh, that John Hopkins, uh, professor who's a white man, uh, Jonathan I'll get his last name in a second, but he, he just published his book where he did a study in Baltimore. Uh, he followed young black males and young white males uh, who were both, quote, unquote, poor. And it was radically different uh, outcomes for their, the span of their lives. Uh, and it didn't matter if the white person committed a crime, the black person committed a crime, it was going to be way better for that white person. They were going to get way more opportunities way more resources than that black person, even if they did have a mess up and get arrested and spend some time in jail, it was still going to be way better for them just because it means that much to be white in a system of white supremacy. And I just, I don't think that that can be stated often enough. And frankly, I don't really see the media doing a good job of articulating that. I don't know what reports you've seen that would, you know, allow you to draw that conclusion, but I just have not seen that uh, talked about that way or reported, even in the past 45 days uh, with Ferguson, but maybe I'm in error. Well, I would say, you know, I mean, so many things at play in these conversations, but I'm not disagreeing that opportunities are more prevalent for white people. I'm not saying that in our governmental system that race is something that has nothing to do with this problem. It absolutely does. There is a bias. There is discrimination there are not equal opportunities. That's not something I'm denying or ever have denied. Um, what I am saying, and I, I can give you two examples of, I've been unlawfully pulled over in St. Louis for two different reasons. Um, I was discriminated against both racially and economically in St. Louis by the St. Louis police. And I'm a white person. So that's an abuse of power, just as someone else who is profiled. So I was profiled for economics and for race. So, you know, my experience in St. Louis has been, a, has been one sometimes of oppression, but also that um, what has happened in Ferguson beyond Michael Brown in terms of the treatment of the people that are protesting, that has been a major violation of human rights. And that is now a new issue that I think the media is not addressing and not even recognizing, just as you pointed out. And my film has a very strong connection in terms of addressing that issue and seeing how both populations in this situation have been manipulated and have been taken advantage of 
and pitted against each other and not and seeing in that smoke screen of racism that how basic human rights has been manipulated and that economic oppression is really at the root of it because who benefits the most from the situation are the rich white people that control the government. It wasn't the lower class white people and it wasn't even the middle class. It was the people who ran the ship. And that's the theme of the film and that's what's happening in Ferguson and yet so many people are distracted by the race baiting that's going on. So I think that what you just said is absolutely correct and I agree with it. No, you don't. No, no, you don't, because I do, I do not agree. What I just said is, is the total opposite antithesis, really, to what you just said. Uh, I am not saying in any way, shape, or form, and I, I'm sure I have been very clear about that. I'm just making sure. Uh, I am not saying in any way that it is rich white people who benefit. It is white people in total. Darren Wilson is not, I don't, or at least he was not before all of this, Darren Wilson was not a rich white guy. He was not be somebody that folks would say, oh, yeah, this is one of the elite. This is one of the 1% that is ruining it for all of us. Darren Wilson has benefited from this. You and I seem to be in agreement. We do not think he's going to be indicted. We don't think he's going to jail. We don't think this is going to ruin his life. He's got a half million dollars, maybe more by now, killed a black person, and moving forward. He's in seclusion right now. We'll probably be back on the job at some point. That's what I suspect will happen. And even if he retires, he got a half million dollars. He can easily go relocate and do whatever he wants to. He's not one of the 1%, but he has benefited from this. And I would say many of the other white people in St. Louis, they also have benefited from this, even if it's at minimum, it's those low-level white people that are making the decisions about what's going to happen in St. Louis and why Darren, uh, Darren Wilson is not being charged likely not going to be indicted or jailed or anything of that nature. Those, again, they're not the 1%, I don't think. Those are not the people that have billions uh, of dollars. Uh, District Attorney McCullough, if I'm getting his name correct, uh, I don't think he has billions of dollars. I haven't heard anyone report that, but he has a lot of power in what happens in this particular case and over many of the lives of black people who live in Ferguson, uh, I guess that's St. Louis County. He has a lot of power and control. He is benefiting as a white person, as do all white people, whether they have a nickel or $5 billion, that's the way that the system is set up. They don't all benefit equally, but you benefit just being a white person. You benefit and you participate in the practice of racism. So no, at all. We are not saying the same thing, which is fine. We don't have to agree, but I just want to make sure that I'm very clear about that. We're saying two totally, radically different things, and what you are saying I am submitting is totally Incorrect. Some of it is just flat out not true. Uh, you saying that it has not been covered in terms of the abuses of the press and people that are protesting. President Obama spoke on that. I don't know how you get more attention uh, drawn to an issue than having the president of the United States making a comment on that. I'm sure you saw that. I'm sure most of the folks listening, if you've been paying attention at all for the last four months, uh, he commented on that about the press should not be abused and the right to peaceful protests should not be infringed upon. He and many other, even some of uh, St. Louis's elected officials have spoken on this. So that, I mean, in my opinion, is just absolutely untrue, uh, what you just said, as is your overall contention that this is a human rights issue or an economic issue. That is malarkey of the ha uh, highest order. And again, I'll just continue to make sure I say it. I suspect a deliberate, willful act of racism. I'm sure you heard President Obama's remark and some of the St. Louis officials. Uh, and I'm sure you know as a white person that uh, it's not about, and oh, I did want to make sure I didn't want to lose track. You said that you were a victim of racial discrimination. What exactly yeah. does that mean? How, were you mistreated specifically because you are a white person? Can we get details on that? Absolutely. I was driving in downtown city with my black girlfriend at the time. I did nothing wrong. I was pulled over by an African-American cop. 
came up to my door, slammed it with his flashlight, purposely for 10 minutes just stared me down without any cause just to intimidate me for having a black girl in my car. And, I mean, if somebody slams their flashlight into your window, that's threatening. I don't care if they're white or black. And I did nothing wrong. Did he, like, slam you on the ground or dent your vehicle or impound your car? Like, what, what else happened? Slamming the flashlight into my window and then making me wait for 15 minutes in my car just staring me down was psychologically threatening. And slamming my – I mean, he could have shattered my window. I'm not saying that I was hurt. I'm not saying that I was made a target for discrimination. You did say you were a target for discrimination. You just said that. You said you were a target of racial discrimination. I, honestly, I'm not, you're not interested in having a conversation. You're interested in just – you're just as guilty as the white media is in terms of trying to provoke hatred. I, I made a film to try to unify. I'm trying to have a conversation to find things in common. You're trying to find things to divide just as much as white people are. You are not even listening to my example of discrimination. You're discounting it. You that to me is not a conversation. Wait a minute. You said, you said you were a victim of racial discrimination. That was what you said. And then you said I was not. And you said again, but you just said a few seconds ago that you're not trying to say that you're a victim of discrimination. That's what I mean about it. It's, it's, as the caller said, it's confusing. It just seems like you're, you're contradicting yourself. I'm just trying to I out. said I was. A, I am a victim of, in that case, I was a victim of racial discrimination. Absolutely. Because I was white. Wow. And that, did, did, he say, did he call you a cracker or did he you know, make it something specific where you felt like, hey, he is specifically drawing attention to me because I'm a white person? I think pulling me over for no reason, slamming his flashlight into my window, and then making me wait for no reason to intimidate me, um, I can't think of any other reason he would choose to do that for no reason. Did he tell you why he pulled you over? Nope. He didn't, I mean, what did he say? He asked you to pull your window now. He didn't say anything. He just came up, slammed the thing, and he, he just he, he grabbed my license, went back to his car, and just made us wait. And my black girlfriend who was in the car was freaked out, and she, she easily saw what the issue was, and she was able to see from a white perspective what it was like for me to be discriminated against. I mean, but I'm still confused because you said he, he tapped his flashlight on the he window. He didn't tap. He slammed. He, slammed. he didn't okay. tap it. He slammed his flashlight on your window. He made you stand out for 15 minutes. He said he got your license. I mean, what, he had to say something. Like, what did he say? He didn't. He didn't say a word. He, he did not utter a single word to you during the entire exchange. He didn't say one he word. Did, he demanded my license. I gave it to him. He came back, and he, I, I'm, I could be wrong, but it seemed like he was under the influence of some kind of drug because he did not seem in his right mind, and he, it was very hateful. There was no kind of rational to pulling me over. There was no kind of rational for him to treat me like that and to not give me an explanation, not be able to write me up for any kind of law broken is discrimination. It's profiling. Why I'm 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 just I'm not clear because you you haven't I mean he didn't call you you didn't say he called you a name uh, you didn't say he he said anything to you specifically he just he got your license made you wait 15 minutes he pulled you over for no reason you were afraid your girlfriend black girlfriend was afraid and then he really did he give you a ticket summons anything nope but he wasted a half an hour of my time and you scared said 15 the shit out of both of us you said 15 minutes before yeah he made us wait and then came back and gave me my stuff, and we were freaked out. It ruined my evening, and it made me distrustful of police in downtown, just as wow. people are in Ferguson. Wow. Where, where did this happen at again now? St. Louis City. St. Louis City. And can I ask what year this was? 
2001. 2001. Okay. The person, did you have a question before we uh, wrap up the caller at 1418? Did you have a question for Mr. Morton? <laughs> Hello, Gusty? Yes, sir. Uh, what question for you? Um, what was what's the name of that book that you said about John Hopkins? He did a study. Do you have do you happen to know the name of that book? Uh, yes, sir. Give me one second. I'll pull it up for you. I thought you had a question for uh, our guest here. Uh, the book. It's not a problem. <laughs> um, the author is uh, uh, okay. Not John. Sorry, Carl Alexander. Carl Alexander. Uh, and the book, he's a co-author, but the book is The Long Shadow, Family Background, Disadvantaged Urban Youth, and the Transition to Adulthood. Long title. Uh, the title I'll give it one more time. The Long Shadow, Family Background, Disadvantaged Urban Youth, and the Transition to Adulthood. Um, the author is Carl with a K Alexander. He did a, a report on uh, CNN. It's called Urban Poverty in Black and White, where he articulates what I just said, that it is not economics, it is racism. Uh, but he did that report uh, this summer, July 11th. Uh, he was on NPR. He was on Al Jazeera. Uh, he's been all over the place uh, reporting his book. He's at John Hopkins University, Carl Alexander, The Long Shadow. Uh, you can check it out. The book just came out in July. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Cool. I uh, assume... Uh, Everybody is uh, is cool. <laughs> that is astounding. I just, in comparison to incidents that I have had with enforcement officials, man, <laughs> if I had to wait 15 minutes, they didn't call me any names. They didn't draw. Oh, wait a minute. Um, oh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Morton, he he hung up. I don't know if he got disconnected or what. <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna let him exit uh, after the program. That is. Uh, Wowie. Wow. <laughs> if, uh, my anecdote was if that was the worst experience of police brutality that I had in my life, oh, man, <laughs> like, uh, I might not be doing this radio program. If that was the worst that I have experienced uh, was tapping, or he said slam, that was what he said, didn't break the window, but slamming his light, flashlight into the window, making him wait 15 minutes, no ticket, no citation, uh, and uh, however this uh, hate was conveyed, because that's what he said, uh, if that was the worst experience that I had with enforcement officers, there might not be a context of white supremacy. Uh, I don't know what the typical black person, uh, black people who listen to this program, I don't know what your experience is with enforcement officials, but woo, <laughs> that sounds like a walk in the park, man. <laughs> and with a black girlfriend, no less. My gosh, my gosh. Um, I, uh, I don't, uh, I don't see any other folks that dialed in, so I will, <laughs> I will not uh, ring him back. I don't, uh, I don't know if he hung up on us voluntarily or if he, uh, his battery died or, or what the case is. But he, uh, he disconnected. Um, fascinating. Fascinating. I have not seen this film. Make sure I get that in as well. I have not seen Spanish Lake. I do want to uh, check it out once uh, it's available next month. Uh, my whole knowledge about it just comes from uh, reading the different press clippings uh, where they've talked about the film, the trailers that are available online, and some of the uh, interviews that he's done uh, about the work so far. That's my sole knowledge uh, for what I have to say about it. But uh, that is astounding. 
<laughs> on, uh, on so many levels, uh, astounding. Uh, I can only submit, I suspect that that is going to be more popular. That's not, to me, that sounds very Alex Jones. Uh, I think there are a lot of white people, even uh, the film series, it's, uh, it's slipping my mind. It's like four of them. Uh, very, very popular. Um, I, I know I'll be able to go online and find it in a second, but it's like a documentary film series. Uh, where they're talking about uh, how we're all in, in kind of like the matrix. I think it came out of like the first one came out of like 2007, and they have like I think three or four of them. Now, we did a whole program on it uh, some years ago, and I, I talked about then how I hated it. And, uh, but it's like supposed to be this new age type thing where, uh, yes, there's all types of slavery going on, and religion is a part of it, and we're all being oppressed. They had a big segment on 9-11. I know somebody that's listening right now has seen – uh, this film series. Uh, I don't remember because I don't like the film series. I said it's, it's malarkey. Uh, but it's that same sort of narrative that it's not racism, that, that, that uh, the media or whoever is in control, that they just use this to pit us apart, to divide us. Uh, and I uh, have staunchly rejected all of that. It is utter, absolute nonsense, nonsense of the highest order. And in my opinion, it's dangerous uh, because it, pos- it, it positions you where you should be looking for white allies. You should be looking for white people like our guest or Alex Jones or some of these other white people who say, oh, yeah, 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 I'm not racist. It's, it's just the system, man. It's, it's the, the 1%, man. It's the greedy, man. They're just out to get us, man. They're, they're trying to get us all, man. We're all slaves, man. I hate the police, too, which is a lot of what I, that's why I said I've heard what he's saying. That's not unfamiliar. I've heard a lot of that over the last 45 days. I don't know about folks listening, but I have, uh, where they said, oh, yeah, the police are there. I have to get us all, man. I, I hate the police. There's been tons of white people uh, who saying that. I know Bruce Fine, she, she said she was seeing hundreds of articles where uh, white people were hijacking the narrative of how Ferguson, Michael Brown, was being discussed to say, hey, we are victims of police brutality. See this police officer, see what he did to this white fellow over here. See, see, see what he did to this white woman over here. See, see that they were doing a lot of that. And like I said, it's, it's total silliness. It's nonsense of the highest order uh, all the way through. Poor white people do not identify with black people, non-white people. Uh, as I said, most of the non-white people, black people I'm around, they're not even confused about that. They understand that poor white people do not identify with them. Uh, they're not about fighting for black people and making sure black people are safe uh, and have quality schools and are not being tased and slaughtered by enforcement officials. Uh, they understand that, at least the non-white people that I've been around in mass. Uh, and rich black people, if it was really economic, uh, if it was really economic oppression, then if you are a black person and you got some major coin, this shouldn't be a problem. And that is simply not true, up to and including First Lady Michelle Obama and President Obama. If this, that's really what it was about, then these folks should be fine. They shouldn't have any complaints. And I just don't see any evidence that that's true at all. In fact, Johnny Cochran, <laughs> God bless the dead, Johnny Cochran was treated worse by enforcement officials than I guessed uh, and his pitiful illustration of racial terrorism from some brute black officer, uh, Johnny Cochran, uh, it's documented that he was pulled over at gunpoint uh, by his family in California, not Mississippi or Alabama or Georgia, at gunpoint uh, with his family in the vehicle. Uh, and they didn't know who he was. He was just some other random nigger. It's too many illustrations of that. Uh, black people with a lot of money being terrorized and treated as though they're on Section 8 housing, and food stamps. 
uh, it's just it's blatant, it's obvious. And any white person who comes in with that agenda, I view that they're practicing racism, white supremacy in a really dangerous, treacherous manner, uh, and there should be a lot of suspicion uh, about what they're up to. Um, I will take a commercial break if folks have uh, any comments they want to get in about what they heard from Mr. Uh, Morton during the course of the broadcast. Uh, if uh, you all want to chime in, we can make time for that as well. Take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. Context of white supremacy. Oops, messed that up. RacismDaily.com, your number one source for global news reports on race, racism, and overt actions of white supremacy. From Asia to the Americas to Europe to Australia to Africa, racism is not a thing of the past. It is our current reality. Be informed. Be globally informed. You should be the first to know. RacismDaily.com, RacismDaily.com, RacismDaily.com. Is racism hurting you? On issues of race, are you unable to speak, think, and act with clarity and confidence? Are you tired of laughing when nothing is funny, smiling when you are not happy, agreeing when you really disagree? Counterracism.com, you can learn specific strategies and techniques to counter the behaviors of the people who practice racism in all areas of activity. Using words correctly, following counter-racist logic, even counter-racist science projects designed to reveal what racism is, how it works, and how to counter it. The open source code writing format allows you to pick and choose from a variety of counter-racist suggestions so you can produce the code that works for you. Stop by counterracism.com today and help replace racism with justice. That's counter-racism.com. Do you need a one-stop shop for all of your multimedia needs? Triumphant Multimedia is a skilled team of professionals with a passion for great marketing and chic design. Our specialties include consulting, brand development, copywriting, and creative graphic design that's second to none. We also offer photography, photo retouching, videography, and video editing. At Triumphant Multimedia, our goal is to provide highly effective creative solutions built to suit any individual need or budget. Give us a call at 678-732-8067 or check us out online at trimultimedia.com. Welcome. This is Justice with the Cows Radio program. If you want to learn about, understand, and counter racism, white supremacy, be sure not to miss a Cows episode. We keep them jammed, packed with constructive information to sharpen your use of words to help eliminate the system of racism, white supremacy, ASAP. Also, to be able to invest in my counter racist efforts, co-hosting the Cows Radio program, Please visit my blog, 
Just do justice today. Blogspot.com. You're just saying just buckets and buckets of words. I got an uncle real crazy. My uncle B, 55 years old, hates white people, married to a white lady. And he sit around going, you know, these crackers ain't shit. Except for Susan. And he tried to explain the whole thing to me one day, say, yeah, 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 I got a white wife, I love her, she love me, that's all that matter. But I tell you this, if the revolution ever come, I'll kill her first. Just to show these crackers I mean business. Motherfucker cracker ass, motherfucker cracker. Shit cracker, motherfucker. Hey, hey, hi, honey. Motherfucker cracker, I'll kill my cracker kid too. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Fascinating. I should have asked uh, our guest. Uh, when he was giving his rundown about the uh, psychosexual attraction that white men have for black females, that would have been uh, ideal follow-up to ask him if he's had sexual intercourse with a non-white person, black person, male or female. But we got that down the road anyway. He volunteered that. Um, fascinating on all accounts. Wow. Wow. While uh, we were doing the commercial break, I was looking at the article uh, the caller asked <clears throat> on that book, uh, The Long Shadow, uh, talking about the difference, massive monumental difference between being uh, a white person, quote-unquote poor white person, and a poor black person, the monumental difference in uh, your, the arc of your life under the system of white supremacy and all the goodies and benefits that come to even uh, the poor bedraggled white folk. Um, but at the top of the page, <laughs> T.J. Lane, uh, the... He was a teenage white terrorist uh, in 2012. He went and shot up a school in Ohio. Uh, I think he killed a black person. Uh, he escaped from prison uh, today. They just uh, That was the big alert that they had at the top of the page. Uh, folks, remember, this was the little white terrorist. Uh, he wore a T-shirt that had killer on it when he was in court and gave the middle finger uh, to the victims in the whole courtroom while he was there, obstinate to the very end. He got a life sentence. Uh, but I remember, I didn't remember it initially. It took a while. I had to see his face uh, in the pictures uh, and then read him a little bit more about the case for it to jog my memory because there have been so many white shootings. But uh, this is the incident where they got the victims uh, on TV, one of the black victims, because I think he shot some white people too. But he killed a black student, and I think they had the black victim's parents on television, and they said that they were praying for him, and God bless him, and all that. I have to kind of go back in the archives to see if I can find it, but that, it really stood out to me, uh, just, you know, to get someone who's been victimized in the worst way, to get, you know, a parent who has uh, lost their child violently to some white terrorist, uh, and to have them on TV uh, praying uh, for this savage. Uh, it was just, it was the worst of, of all uh, worlds. Talk about media manipulation. At any rate, uh, folks have anything that they uh, want to get in before uh, we wrap things up, uh, this would be the time to do so. Uh, dial in. I don't, I'm hoping uh, to not do the full three hours because we'll be back uh, tomorrow and Saturday and Sunday and Monday. Uh, so we should uh, be very active. Folks will have time to get in uh, whatever they like. Um, any of the folks that are online have anything that they wanted to share before we wrap things up? Yeah, um, yeah, I, I, 
Go ahead, Carla. I'll go next. Um, yes. Um, yeah, they call it there. I mean, that guess there, I think you said his name, Mr. Brown or Brown Morton. or whatever. Mr. Morton. Morton. Okay, Morton. But, yeah, I think he was being very misleading. And um, I just <clears throat> I had really was thinking about it, you know. And, um, I think he was right on point about talking about how it wasn't about economics and all that type of stuff. And I just looked it up, the definition. In a class system, you can move on depending how well you do, improve from one class to another class. But in the caste system, you are born in the caste, and you cannot move all of this thing. You cannot move from one caste to another caste except by reincarnation. And this is what the definition is saying right here. And, yeah, like, you know, regardless of how much money you get, you cannot move to the white caste. You see what I'm saying? And to me, like, just the whole thing about, you know, white white supremacists being a very low-class type of people, you know, to me, you can't get no more low-class than a white supremacist. And... You know, a lot of things he was saying um, was trying to blame victims of white supremacy, talking about how white victim, how victim of white supremacy, who was a law, um, who worked for the authorities um, or whatever like that, you know, um, or something like that. He really was just that's what he was doing. You know, I don't think he came. I think I think he was intentionally trying to practice white supremacy and confusion. He did a good job of confusion. Didn't know whether I was coming or going. Um, he got through, you know, like but most most white people right. again white supremacy. You know, they they are not allies with the victims of racism. He said it clearly and then I was like, Oh, so since most white people are not Against white supremacy, that means they're white supremacists. Then most white people are white supremacists. No, no, I'm not saying that. And I, I was just, I don't know, you know, just the clowning and all that. It was something else, but you know, it was expected, though, you know. But I mute my line. Yes, uh, uh, he was the the uh, the guest was uh, heading down. Uh, a uh, common path uh, when uh, white people start uh, comparing with the idea of equalizing uh, non-white black people can mistreat just as worse as white people can uh, type of uh, 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 talk uh, that he was heading in a... uh, a, uh, a racist direction, and uh, that's what I was. Uh, and I could be, I could be wrong, uh, but I could have, I could have sworn that he said something, if not word for word, but uh, uh, similar to what I uh, was asking him about when he started making this comparison that uh, rich black people uh, can uh, uh, have something to do with uh, uh, making. Uh, Poor black people, poor. 
And uh, I'm saying, how, under the context of racial white supremacy, how can that be so without the assistance of a powerful white person? You know, and uh, he started he and hawing then uh, because he first would admit something that he didn't say and then agree with the concept that it could happen. And then when he dropped the... Uh, the uh, uh, sexual intercourse uh, bomb uh, that, that told me, you know, something more about him. And uh, you can rest assured he hung up on purpose uh, because, uh, as you mentioned, white people are not, uh, not dumb to uh, the system of racism and white supremacy. And uh, uh, he was, like, exposed to uh, abusing a, a non-white uh, black person, in this case a black female. Uh, with this talk, I mean, I've, I've, I've broken plenty of windows, of call windows, uh, 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 and it doesn't take a whole lot to, uh, to uh, damage a window to where if you shatter the window. You know, so, but, but he, you know, but the whole idea, you know, one wants to dramatize uh, this encounter with this uh, non-white black victim of racist white supremacy who also happened to be a uh, law enforcement official. Uh, you know, probably with your, from the standpoint of, of attempting to do his job like most of us attempt to do as non-white victims and whatnot, but he's going to dramatize this, this uh, incident uh, to try to convince convince uh, us as victims that black people can do something that actually they, they're incapable of doing under the system of racist white supremacy. And I mean, it is, I've, heard that, I've heard that type of attitude, that type of strategy, a whole lot out of white people. Because the intent is, is to continue to keep the understanding of racist white supremacy to, to victims confused. That's the whole purpose of it, and 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 in my opinion, he was practicing racism. He started. He just started. You know, stop what he was doing and just started practicing racism. In in the in the uh, the sly, sophisticated fashion that white people do nowadays. <clears throat> I agree. Uh, I can only say. When I was more confused uh, by racism, white supremacy, and not suspicious uh, minimum of, of uh, every single white person, male, female, child, the whole nine, at minimum, uh, I would have probably thought, oh, my goodness, this is a, a wonderful white guy. He's great. And uh, when I was more confused, I even for a minute was momentarily swayed by, by some of these white folks. Uh, saying that it's not really about racism, it's economics. They just use that to keep us divided. And I've heard even some black people, they've been very effective, even some victims uh, have picked up, you know, that silliness and saying, oh, it's not about racism, it's about class. They just use that to keep us distracted, keep us fighting with each other when it's not about racism at all, while they just laugh at us, uh, just extremely uh, effective. Um, I don't know what you all that really, I, I found it, offensive, uh, not that, you know, my feelings get hurt with these white people, but that sort of, in my ascending, condescending theory that for black people to start saying that this is racism, that 
they are just being manipulated uh, by the quote-unquote media, the press is just stirring this up and getting them to talk about racism as though uh, black people don't have functioning brains uh, and the intellect to accurately grasp the world in which they live, to say, hey, I think this is racism. And, and again, I can only emphasize, I, I, I definitely would not claim to be an expert on anything, but I've spent a lot of time uh, over the last 45 days uh, reading about what's going on in Ferguson. Uh, we've had folks directly in St. Louis on the program uh, to give us updates. Uh, I've read the paper. I've seen the news. I've checked local St. Louis uh, outlets on a regular basis over the last 45 days. I have heard that a lot, <laughs> people saying almost verbatim what he said. It's not like that is a, a viewpoint that is not being given adequate airtime. Uh, that is uh, just totally inaccurate uh, to even try to suggest that. Um, so, and I, I have heard explicitly multiple times. I think I even used some of the clips on the Saturday program where white and non-white people have been saying this is not a race issue. I think the popular one I used was a black female where she said victim, but she said uh, there was a white couple out and they were given the black power salute. How cool is that? Exact words. Uh, what she said, I've heard that over and over again. This is not a race issue. This is a justice issue. This is a human rights issue. That's just not accurate. This is an issue of, in the system of white supremacy, if you are a black person, you don't have human rights. You don't have access to justice. That's what the system of white supremacy dictates. Any sort of mistreatment can be doled out to you at any time, anywhere, regardless of how much money you have, how old you are, what your neighborhood is, what your job is. Any sort of abuse can be targeted, focused on you under this system, and nothing should be done about it. If anything, we should applaud, congratulate, and reward the white person or persons who stuck it to you. That's what racism, white supremacy dictates. And in my view, you're just you're heading off into confusion uh, once you get into that. You know, it's it's uh, everybody. We're all slaves. You know, we all got a job. We're all slaves. White people are being mistreated too. They're slaves too. That that is just you're you're totally missing the point of what's happening here. It's kind of getting on my nerves that I can't think of this uh, documentary film. <laughs> the title of it. I am a victim. So um, let me see if I can. It's something. Matrixy, uh, there are four parts. Series. Uh, Zeitgeist. And you said, Zeitgeist. And you said this is a documentary? That's what it is, Zeitgeist. Uh, it's like four of them. I think it's at least four of them. It's probably more than that now, but Zeitgeist. Uh, I, I don't know if people, I, it's got to be people that are listening that have seen that, the Zeitgeist series. That's a big part of what's in this series, that we're all slaves. Uh, they use religion to control us. They use racism to control us. Uh, they use their uh, defective economic systems to control us, and we're all subject to the same system of oppression, and we all just need to unite as human beings and do our thing. Uh, it's very, very popular. They were giving it out for free. I remember uh, some white people gave us this DVD uh, back in 2007. Uh, a group of black people gave us a DVD of this to watch. Uh, for was it, a, was it a white male that was doing a narrating? Uh, I believe so, yes, sir. I, I, think, I think I've seen parts of it, and, and, and like you, I, I, it started being kind of nauseating. Uh, uh, and I kind of like let it go and then watch all of it because it is, I believe it was pretty extensive in, in, as far as in time. And, and documentaries is what, I, what I'm about. But when it, when it, when it starts taking a twist like that I, and I figure it out, 
or what is what is really saying, it, it, it like turns me off, and I, I and I can't get through get can't can't get through it. You know because it's it, because like you mentioned, it's it's kind of nauseating. But I, I think I've seen uh, at least one or two segments of it. Yeah, it's. Uh, it looks like there are at least three parts, but yeah, it's uh, Peter Joseph is the white guy's uh, name who put it together, and uh, yeah, it's the same thing, some of the same sort of idea. I wish I had thought of the name of it. I would have probably mentioned it to see if he's seen it or what he thinks about it, but uh, that these uh, bankers are manipulating the media and the money system and keeping us all uh, in a state of peonage and slavery. Uh, very, very popular uh, series over the past few years. In, in a lot of cases, in a lot of cases, the white person that that is that is politically quote unquote down like that, they they in their personal lives, they they're in bed with with non-white black people, or they have some sort of some sort of uh, 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 a relationship with non-white black people, and and they they would sell that lie to justify what they're doing, and I'm pretty sure that that your guest today purposely said what he said at the end at the end of his uh, of, of of this particular uh interview to whereas he wasn't gonna say anything else after because that would have totally 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 revolved the entire subject matter of the interview that you were having with him with that last minute uh uh, uh, uh reasoning on why he uh, is trying to say that he's been he was mistreated by a uh, non-white black person. Mm-hmm. You know, because he, he didn't have to, he didn't have to re- even reveal that the female that he had someone with him and it was a female and it was a black female. Mm-hmm. That 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 was that was on purpose emphasized. You know, I mean, because because. Otherwise, it's, not, it's irrelevant. It's really irrelevant for him to even bring it up unless he had a real reason why to bring that up. You know, uh, uh, unless uh, maybe I'm crazy, but that, that's what I'm thinking, you know, from that standpoint. You know, and, and then he up, was going to hang up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree. I think, uh, I think that also, like you were saying, to just dramatize it, I think that also gets to play into the drama like this Rogue yeah. Negro officer yeah. was upset because I was with a black female and he was being racist uh, against me, mad. You know, the same type of uh, psychosexual tension you talked about earlier. Uh, and and I, I would even submit that it might even be an element of you uncouth Negroes uh, are going to talk all wild and not, you know, question me and dispute me and say that I'm practicing racism. Well, I took one of your women. How about that? Ha, ha, ha. Hang up the phone. Yeah. 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 That's what it is. That's what it is. I mean, I mean, because this whole thing of talking about smash, hitting, slamming his, his, his uh, flashlight on the on the, uh, the, the just dramatizing, just trying to dramatize. The guy, the guy might have tapped, tapped his, his flashlight on it just to get his attention. You know, just to get his attention, you know, that sort of thing. It, it, it may have been some sort of polite gesture, you know, why he did what, did what he did. But he, he's going to make it to us. He slammed his flashlight. Well, if he slammed that flashlight, he probably would have broke your window. You know, 
I mean, flash lip, I mean, a, a, similar, a similar thing killed a non-white black male named Arthur McDuffie down here in 1980, and, and it, it caused a major riot. Mm. Just we speaking about uh, 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 Ferguson, uh, they the, 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 the prosecutor, the, I think the prosecutor, yes, uh, uh, gave a demonstration on what kind of force that it took to kill this man by beating him to death with a flashlight, you know. So that's what I hear when I see slam, when I hear the word slamming something, slamming a flashlight, because that was done to this black male back in 1980, you know. So he just over exaggerating stuff, you know. In other words, he started being exposed. That's that's all it is. You know, he and started it's, being. Exposed. And it's kind of seemed funny to me that well, not funny, but it seemed racist to me that. Mike Brown, the murder of Mike Brown was not about race, but him being inconvenienced for 15 minutes by a black officer was about race. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. <laughs> Good observation. Mm-hmm. Can I be heard? Well, how, dare, how dare this nigga stop, stop, stop us, stop us? You know, uh, because I'm flirting with 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 one of one of the. I mean, the the, the 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 police officer may not even even made a made a, a, a political thought of of who he had in the car, but he did. But the white male did. He's pretty much aware of of what he's doing, <laughs> you know. But uh, yeah, interesting. Yes, sir. We can hear you. Oh, okay. Uh, greetings, all. Uh, yeah, I mean. Uh, regarding him getting pulled over, I would have to say that, uh, you know, you don't have to be uh, a black person with a uh, white person to get pulled over <laughs> for being black. I mean, you just get pulled over for being black. But um, uh, I was going to help you uh, uh, with the term zeitgeist, uh, the name of the, the film. But um, for, I'm not a video person, but if anybody uh, is uh, listening or on the, on the call or in the archives, uh, I just had an idea for the uh, an addendum which would uh, uh, not leave out what the obvious glaring omission is, which uh, you call it white geist. <laughs> and that's really, really what you're talking about. It's like, okay, here's the one problem with this movie, at least the one, at least uh, the serious glaring omission. But um, yeah, yeah, it's a little bit of triple T with the with the guest tonight. I concur with other callers. Ah, shame. Ah, shame. Um, yeah, just make sure I, I do not minimize. I am going to check out his film uh, when I see it. Uh, I do. I review the work of white people, uh, <laughs> racist suspects. Race. In fact, that term race soldier, what he was doing on the program this evening, in my opinion, that's an example of a race mm-hmm. soldier right there. That's mm-hmm. the primary function of a race soldier right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I know people, that term is in the word guide and people have been using it applied to Officer Wilson, which I, that's accurate too, but I just, most of the race soldiering that you see, it takes the form of what you heard on the program right there, including his bedroom behavior. That too mm-hmm. is race soldiering. Just Deception. keep that in mind. I'm sorry? Deception, yeah. The, right. the Star Wars thing, you know, these aren't the droids you're looking for. Yeah. Right. But uh, that that segment from the film, I thought that was important to the white people uh, who were hesitant about speaking 
on the on camera, but then revealed that they can remember and laughed about it as well uh, about shooting black Santa decorations off of the rooftops of black homeowners. Uh, I thought that was extremely important as well. I think Mr. Nero, when he says that white people kill for fun, T.J. Lane just escaped from prison, uh, white people kill for fun, uh, I can only imagine if black people decided that they were going to go out and shoot at white homeowners randomly just because they didn't like their decorations or whatever, just because they're upset about white people being there. I could only imagine the response to that sort of behavior if black people decided to go do that. Uh, and I'm even reminded, Scotty Reed, the founder of the Black Talk Radio Network, said that the same thing happened to him on the 4th of July, uh, where he, uh, some white people came on his property uh, down in North Carolina and were shooting uh, at, t- at his residence and shooting on his property uh, during the 4th of July. But that sort of thing, I'm, not that I'm shocked about it, that sort of thing is, is commonplace under the system of racism, white supremacy, uh, shooting at, shooting, killing black people for fun. Uh, and to make sure I get in again, Kerry Ball Jr., who I'm sure is not in the a documentary film, uh, the black male who was shot 25 times last May, uh, no one has been indicted, convicted for that murder either. White people killed for fun. Uh, before we wrap up, any final thoughts before uh, we conclude things? You just, so you're just probably going to table the Ray Rice stuff or, you know, the uh, call in on Saturday? I don't know, man. <laughs> like, uh, that, for folks, who, if you didn't hear from the beginning, I had said that was the plan. Uh, I had plans uh, as of, like, Tuesday. That was going to be the program we were doing today was Ray Rice, what happened with the Hawks, and I had a couple other uh, incidents that I wanted to get in. I know Dr. Welsing, she's doing her institute for people that are in the uh, D.C. area. She did her uh, institute first one of the new season this evening, and that was some of the stuff that she was going to talk about, and she was talking about uh, just, I mean, you talk about master manipulation of the press and empathy gap. Uh, when I spoke with her yesterday, and she and I, we were both saying the same thing. White people have done a phenomenal job in controlling the press where you just had a whole month of people talking about racism, and how black people are mistreated by enforcement officers, Marlene Pinnock and uh, Kamitra Barber, the black female that was pulled over at gunpoint in Dallas, and obviously Ferguson and Ezell Ford. Now it's Ray Rice. Uh, and she and I, we were both saying, now watch how many people pretend that they care about black people with this. Watch how many people are, Psh, you think you Negroes are deserving of justice? Look how you treat your women. That mm-hmm. up. That was exactly the way it was going to go, and I thought it was so strategic because there's been many reports that the NFL uh, and many other bodies, they had this video months ago. Uh, I saw one report that said the NFL had this video in April. Uh, why it was released now, if they had it in April, that to me is just extraordinary. But I'm, I'm not sure because I, I was trying, I felt that it would be enough people that had commentary on that, and there's been so much talking the Ravens are playing tonight. I even thought that might even be constructive to watch because I'm sure that's going to be a hefty dose of what they're talking about during the game this evening, um, that I didn't want that to take the entire um, – Saturday call-in. Uh, I didn't want that to be everything because, I mean, there are other things that are happening. I think the Atlanta Hawks situation is important, too, uh, as well as a lot of other things that have happened over the past week, including Officer Daniel Holesclaw, the white, uh, I mean, talk about a race soldier. This is the white guy in Oklahoma 
uh, who was accused of raping at least eight black females, uh, he got released on Saturday. So he's not, not even in custody anymore. Mm-hmm. He's on house arrest. Um, so I don't know. Uh, we have the program tomorrow. Uh, just, I mean, we already have guests scheduled for uh, Sunday and Monday as well, and the program tomorrow. So I'm not sure um, how to, to do that. I'm sure people will get their comments in as we go Saturday and, and during the other programs that will come up naturally. But, um, yeah, that was the plan. Uh, I always think it's important to have white people front and center to ask them questions and just to, to scrutinize what they're doing. Um, he informed me very last minute, and I went ahead and said, you know, let's go ahead and do it. Um, but uh, I'm not sure uh, how to how to make sure we get an adequate time to get the Ray Rice thing. If if it does not come up adequately uh, in discussing and making sure people get what they want to say in about this, um, we can make time for it uh, next week. I guess after Monday, uh, it had to be sometime after Monday. But yeah, that was I was looking forward, and then <laughs> Mr. Morton happened. Uh, hopefully, it was not a waste of time. Hopefully, people got something constructive out of. Uh, the exchange and people who got to ask questions and, and what he had to offer. But, yeah, I was looking forward to doing that today, the Ray Rice thing. Uh, on a side note, I'm curious if uh, the black girlfriend of the tonight's guest uh, tuned into the program. Mm. <laughs> I, I, she might have called in if she did, so I, I, I don't know. He's probably keeping it uh, close to the press. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to post it on their uh, Facebook site. Uh, there you, you go. Spanish uh, Spanish Lake Film, uh, the Facebook will pop up. That's like the main. They do have a web page, but uh, the main page where you know people are talking about this and commenting and all that is on Facebook. So I'm going to make sure to post the archives um, so that people can check it out and uh, hear what he has to say. But, yeah, I, I cannot even say I was surprised. I've heard enough interviews where he kept insisting uh, that it was not about race, that this is a class issue. It's not about race, even though he's got all this evidence of white people strategically, deliberately, purposely uh, destroying black families and flushing, quarantining black people to specific areas to make sure that they don't have political power uh, and even benefiting from this. Uh, He talked about that as well, how some of these white families, they were able to even make a profit in selling their uh, residence and moving to a different area. The realtors certainly made a profit, and the price gouging, which we've heard over and over again, that happened in New York, is all throughout the narrative. Uh, Warmth of Other Son, Isabel Wilkerson, uh, where white people – uh, when they do redline and all that, where they get an area and say, okay, we're going to put black people here, they will end up giving them inferior uh, housing and then charge them double, triple what the property is actually worth uh, just to double whammy at home. But it's not about race. Uh, but, yeah, I am going to make an effort to watch the film. Uh, once it comes out, I'll post it once I can find it. Of course, I will not be paying for it. Uh, so I would encourage any folks, uh, do not pay a nickel. I've said that repeatedly. Do not pay for these white people's books, films, whatever. Uh, if you want to study the content, that's great. I do the same thing. But they should not be funded uh, for their continued efforts supporting the white supremacy army. Uh, with that, we should be back tomorrow, same program time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, Mr. Richard Williams, uh, Serena's Venus Williams father, uh, his book, Black and White, The Way I See It. Another great illustration of black people who have a lot of money and have still had a lot of problems with racism, white supremacy. I think it also be good uh, in that book. He talks about how they had a lot of money even before uh, Venus and Serena became international stars and made millions and millions of dollars playing tennis uh, that he had done pretty well uh, and had stored up, had a pretty nice bank account prior to all of that, which helped him, you know, train and prepare them for all the stardom and success that they have achieved uh, on, in, with tennis. 
Um, but the racism still being a dominant factor uh, with what influenced him and what he and his children have experienced. But that will be tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, the compensatory call-in, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific on Saturday. Uh, Sunday, uh, man, Kevin Paul, excuse me, Kevin Fisher Paul, a white male. He is gay. He is a sheriff, San Francisco County. And he and his white male partner adopted two non-white children. They have a 12-year-old black male abducted child, and they have a non-white child who has one white parent, one non-white parent uh, that they have abducted, uh, abducted, adopted. Uh, they've had them for several years now. But he wrote a book about their experience, and uh, he was just on uh, New York Public Radio doing an interview talking about uh, explaining Michael Brown's death and Ferguson to his black abducted child. Uh, he should be with us on Sunday. I am looking forward to that. When I was telling Dr. Welsing about that, she said, may her skin crawl. Uh, that's Sunday. And then on Monday, uh, we should have Debbie Irving. She is a white woman. Uh, she writes about racism, white supremacy. She's in that whole like anti, uh, anti-racist uh, white privilege uh, genre where she goes out and does those speaking engage- engagements to make it seem like there are some good, well-meaning white people. She'll be here on Monday, same program time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, so stay tuned. Uh, we will definitely make time for the Ray Rice inclusion uh, to kind of cover that and see what people have been uh, observing, thoughts on that, uh, as well as the Hawk situation. That's important, too. It's been a lot of uh, a lot of things happening uh, over the past few weeks. But uh, thanks for all the folks who uh, dialed in and contributed. I hope it was a constructive investment of your Thursday evening. Uh, if you have any uh, confusion, any problems, feel free to drop me uh, an email, untiljustice at gmail.com. Uh, you can tweet as well, at untiljustice at until justice. I have to tw- uh, check my Twitter as well. I got backed up on that now. I have like 60 messages there too. Um, feel free to drop a line though if you get confused. If you need to find something uh, in the archives or a uh, guest suggestion, anything else, feel free to drop a line. Uh, invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism-notes.blogspot.com Racism-notes.blogspot.com Listener supported. Counter racist radio. PayPal is in the top right corner. Invest if you think the broadcast is of some value. Uh, If you are not feeling PayPal, let me know. We can hit you with a mailing address if you would like to support to keep the program on air. Uh, And definitely thanks to all of the folks who pitched in on my Amazon wish list, uh, books that I had there, uh, checked, and I got quite a few of the Kindle books that I had been wanting, including Richard Williams. So I'm very excited about that. Thank you to all of the folks who invested there as well. Stay as safe as you possibly can. Uh, Definitely uh, no drinking and driving. Uh, Unlike our guest, Mr. Morton, I suspect if you are a black person and you get pulled over, it is not just going to be a tap on your windshield 15 minutes and you're free to go. Uh, It could be uh, a life-ending, if not life-altering, situation for you as a black person. If you're going to consume any alcohol, any intoxicants, period, uh, get to one place, do it at your residence, and stay there. Uh, If you're going to be with other folks, pick a house, stay there, and leave the following day once you are sober. Uh, We encounter enough difficulties behind the wheel as is. You do not want to compound that 
by being under the influence, being inebriated in any way, shape, or form. You are asking for monumental terrorism and problems from whites. Thank you, kindly, uh, Creator. We ask that you give us patience to remain, excuse me, we ask that you help us remain patient with other victims of racism. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Help us accurately, courageously recognize and identify each and every white person, men, women, and children as race soldiers. We have enemies, and we need to alter our thoughts, speech, actions, and emotions accordingly. Help us discontinue the search for not racist, well-meaning white folks. Help us maximize and demonstrate the highest forms of black self-respect at all times, in all places, and in each and every interaction we have with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice as soon as possible. Context of white supremacy. Signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.